The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain the goal of keeping this show fully independent and free of advertising. You will also gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else. Once again, that's patreon.com slash howisthismovie. And now... For our featured presentation. Hey, it's your old buddy Roger Roper from Shat the Movies Podcast. And alongside me are my two co-hosts, Big D Dick Ebert. Good evening. And Gene Tuzi's Lions. Informative podcast at a reasonable volume. And this is uh this is a big thank you. Shout out to Dana Buckler uh congratulating him on his five year anniversary over at How Is This Movie? You know, we aspire to one day mm-hmm. be as successful and as knowledgeable as uh, Dana Buckler's How Is This Movie. I also want to thank you, uh, Dana, for introducing me to the concept of twosies. Now, wherever I go, whether it's traveling home uh, on airports, uh, Thanksgiving dinners, or in the movie theaters, I cannot have anyone next to me. So thank you for my new elitist seat habits. Yeah, Dana lives probably about 40 minutes from me. I've thought of it a couple times. So when I know there's going to be a new movie coming out that he's going to see, to go to his theater and hope he's there just to disrupt him and be on one of his theater experiences podcasts. Yeah. Dana, we're also uh, hoping you you feel better. Uh, we, uh, we, we know you had a little bit of a scare there. But if you want to check us out, we're over at shatthemovies.com. Uh, and you can check out all our uh, 80s and 90s movies that may have been covered under How Is This Movie, but we do a, we do a slightly shittier job than, than Dana does. But uh, Dana, wish you all the well. Thank you so much for being friends of the podcast and uh, such a great guy. Uh, keep up the good work. If you would have asked me in the first week of November 2013 that five years later I would be recording my fifth anniversary episode, I'm not sure I would have believed it. Yet, here I am. It's been a very interesting journey thus far. Along the way, the podcast evolved from a simple group of friends discussing movies into a podcast that talks about film history, interviews extremely interesting guests, and of course, my adventures at the local multiplex. But along the way, something happened that I couldn't have envisioned prior to me starting a podcast. And that was all the connections that I've made and all the amazing people that I have had the utmost pleasure to meet. They say you should never dwell on the past, but I often think about what would have happened if I hadn't started my podcast and think of all of you that I would have never met. I'll admit it. I try my best not to think about it and just focus on how amazing this experience has been. Another thing I often think about was the passion I had to start this podcast. I desperately wanted to share my love of movies with as many people as possible. And in the beginning, I failed miserably, to the point that I almost gave up on the whole idea. It took a close friend to convince me to try one more time. So to Brandon, thank you. I'm forever grateful for you pushing me to not give up. For everyone that is listening right now, remember that it's okay to fail. I did but I picked myself up and gave it another shot. Whatever you are passionate about, do it.
even if you fall flat on your ass, get up and do it again. Because as much as I think about all of the wonderful people I met and the opportunities I've had, I know in my heart that if I would have quit for good on my dream of doing a podcast about a subject I love, the regret would have always haunted me forever. Now, there are a ton of people I need to thank on this fifth anniversary episode to every single person that became a Patreon supporter, both past and present. I am forever grateful. As the show continued to grow, the cost associated with it also grew, and your support has really helped me keep this podcast on track. Thank you. To the fellow podcasters that had me as a guest on their show, thank you. It was always humbling to think that someone would even want me to be a guest on their show. To every single guest that has been on my podcast, thank you for taking the time to chat with me. If you were on my show, that meant that you were very important to me and I really valued your opinions. If there's one thing that I have learned is that the podcasting community is awesome. So to every single podcaster that took the time to mention my show, either on their podcast or through social media, I say thank you. It's an awesome community to be a part of, and I am grateful for all of your support. I need to thank Andrew Jubin and Patrick Bromley, the hosts of We Hate Movies and F This Movie. These are the two podcasts that inspired me to want to do my own podcast, so you can imagine the thrill I had having both of them as guests on my show. And of course, thanks to Patrick, I got a chance to meet Adam Risky. To every single person that took the time to write an article that included my podcast, once again, truly humbling. To every single person that took the time to leave a review about this podcast, good or bad, I really appreciate your honest feedback. Now, as you can tell, I'm trying my best not to name too many names because I know I will leave someone's name out that deserves to be mentioned. Those that I have now made lifelong connections with, you know who you are, and I'm a better person for knowing you. This is going to be the last How Is This Movie podcast. The next episode I release after this will be the first episode of The Dana Buckler Show. Now, as I've mentioned previously, it's really a change in name only. The format of the show is not going to change, although it's going to be expanded. You're still going to get the film history episodes. You're still going to get the movie theater rants. I already have another one ready to roll out. You're still going to get the interviews, but I'm going to be adding some additional content. So I'm really excited about the next five years of this podcast. So for this episode, I decided that it was time to unveil my 10 favorite films of all time. And I've asked one of my most frequent guests to join me. Also, throughout this episode, you're going to be hearing from some fellow podcasters and content creators. These are some people that I've established some great relationships with, and I am forever grateful that they took the time to record a message to play on this show. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's get into the fifth anniversary episode of how is this movie? One of the more interesting things that have happened to me throughout the history of this podcast was a lot of the different connections that I've made. And one of the, one of the, I'd like to say one of the most unique, one of the best connections that I made was being introduced to writer director, Phil Juano. And Phil was introduced to me through another frequent guest of the show, Jim Hemphill. And Phil had a just finished production on a movie called the veil. It hadn't had its release yet. And he sent me a, 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 a a copy to review and I really really enjoyed the movie. I asked him to come on and I I guess initially I thought we would just discuss the movie and that would be it and you know thank you so much for sending me the movie. So of course looking over Phil's resume on IMDb I was it, it suddenly occurred to me that well he directed a, a lot of movies that I really really like. Three o'clock high State of Grace, The Gridiron Gang, Entropy. I mean, these are all movies that I really liked. So, of course, naturally, after we discussed The Veil, 
it shifted, the conversation shifted into more conversations about other projects he's worked on. And if you're a longtime listener of the show, then you know that he didn't just appear that one time. He has been arguably my most frequent guest on the show and somebody I always look forward to talking to. So for this fifth anniversary episode, I couldn't think of anyone else I'd rather discuss my 10 favorite films with than Phil Juano. Phil, welcome back to How Is This Movie? Oh, Dana, thank you so much for having me. I mean, what an honor to be a part of the fifth anniversary. And, uh, you know, I couldn't be happier to be here with you. I I love doing this with you and um, I, I love the show. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I want to do something a little bit different. I was really racking my brains for the fifth anniversary because, as I've mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this will be the last episode that is entitled, How Is This Movie? Starting next week, after the release of this episode, this will now become the Dana Buckler Show, which will still focus on movies, but will also focus on other things. And I'm asked all the time through social media, through emails, Dana, what do you think of this movie, and what do you think of that movie, and what's your favorite movies, and why why haven't you discussed your all-time favorite films? And I thought, for the final episode of How Is This Movie, why not discuss my 10 favorite films? Now, I want to preface this by saying that these are not what I consider to be the 10 greatest movies ever made. IMDb has a list for that. There are a thousand lists, and, and people will argue over the greatest films ever made. But these are the 10 films that I feel like, in my 40 years, impacted me the most in different ways. And I wanted to share this list with the listeners, and I wanted to have Phil on to discuss these movies. And I will start by saying that numbers 9, excuse me, numbers 10 through 2 are really interchangeable. I mean, this is not the definitive, my number nine favorite movie is this. No, this is the, these are, here's a list of my favorite films in no particular order with the exception of number one, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But I think it's going to be very anticlimactic for very long time listeners of the show. I think they're going to figure out rather quickly what those, what that number one film is. But before we do that, before we get started on the list. Started this podcast in November of 2013 and I got the idea Because in 2011, I got my first iPhone. I discovered podcasting, which I immediately recognized as radio on demand. And I immediately recognized that there was a subject for, there was anything you were interested in, there was a podcast related to it. And of course, being someone who's forever interested in films and filmmaking process, I of course gravitated towards the movie podcasts. And it sort of just began to to grow on me, the idea that I wanted to do a podcast. I had no podcasting experience. I had no experience working in radio, but I had a drive and I had a passion and I had an idea. Now, the execution of those first, I like to say, 10 episodes of How Is This Movie, that was met with a lot of trial and error. I remember getting emails from people saying, it sounds like an interesting conversation, but we can't hear you. (laughs) <laughs> because they, because it was recorded too low. So so the first 10 episodes of How Is This Movie are they're they're gone. They're 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 it's dust in the wind. They don't exist anymore. I am going to do something unique and something special. If the first person who can email me and tell me what the subject matter was, the subject matter of episode 1 of How Is This Movie, is, mm-hmm. I have a $50 Amazon gift card that I will send to you. Ooh. So so I have it. I bought it yesterday and I will mail it anywhere in the world. If someone, for the first person that can tell me what the subject matter was. Now, uh, of course, the only people that are not allowed to participate in this contest will be Justin, Catherine, and Ray, who were my 
three co-hosts for that very first episode. So you guys, I know you're listening. I'm sorry. You can't participate. I was, I was not a co-host for that episode, so I am eligible. You are eligible, yes. <laughs> uh, I will say this. The subject matter of that first episode has never been tackled on the podcast since then. So once again, just email me at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And the first person who answers that question correctly, uh, again, I will send out a $50 Amazon gift card. And so, just so I'll know, he just uh, off mic uh, revealed to me the answer. So if you email me, uh, no, <laughs> not I'm not revealing it. No. It, won't be that, it won't be that easy, kids. Sorry. All right. So let's talk about 10 films that had an impact on my film watching career. And again, these are going to be in no particular order with the exception of number one. So I'd like to start with the number 10 film on the list, which is 2004's Shaun of the Dead. Now, mm. now this is an interesting movie to me because this is a movie and, and a lot of this is always about what's going on in my life. What are the parallels that are happening in my life? Well, when this movie comes out, I am right in that same age range as Simon Pegg's character, Sean. Well, he's 29 years old in the film and he is kind of just coasting through life without a care in the world. And what I found so fascinating about the movie was you take the zombie element out of the movie and it's still a film I would love to see through to the end. Oh, because totally agree. I thought the characters between Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, their chemistry was natural. You could tell they were really <laughs> friends. I just found that they were just such interesting characters and so damn relatable to me because at 29, I was doing the exact same thing. I was going to the pub every night with my friends. I was not taking, probably not taking the advice of my then girlfriend serious about, <laughs> you know, what I should be doing with my life. So I saw myself on screen. Uh, minus the zombie part of it. But when the zombie part kicks in, what I think you get is a really well-executed, really fun movie that does a, a lot of really unique things with the camera movements, with sync, with, with long extended takes. The movie mm -hmm. is incredibly funny. It's incredibly charming. It's gory. It's, it's R-rated. It's a movie that you think if it was made in 2018, the studio would say this has to be a PG-13 movie, but they got away with it in 2004. So, Phil, tell me your thoughts on Shaun of the Dead. I agree with everything you just said. And, and um, you know, I think that the minute to jump to what you were saying about the execution is that I think that when I really knew this film was going to be special, I mean, it's, you know, is that long steady cam shot that takes him to work the first time. Yeah. And, you know, he goes thing and the guy begs for the money, he gives him the money and he trips over the curb and he goes all the way, you know, we just try going, all these things happen as he goes out the gate and, and off to work. And then the next time, you know, we've had hints that something's gone on in the TV, but he hasn't paid attention. And then he really, and he goes, he goes out the gate. And now we see, all, we realize and know, and of course it's Shaun of the Dead. So we know it's going to be about zombies going in. We see all the zombies in the background, but he is so, you know, distracted. He doesn't see him repeat the exact same shot, but now with zombies instead of all the people he usually runs across. And I just thought, okay, this is going to be a ton of fun. It's going to be really smart and, and extremely well executed. But I, but I would come back to what, what you really, I think you hit the nail on the head with the fact that you care about these guys. You care about, uh, you know, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, you, you root for them. 
you relate to them. We've all been there. We've all had that roommate. We've also had the jerk roommate. You know, we've, we've all had the job. I mean, how about him sitting there, you know, when he has to take over the job in the morning and like they're all chewing gum and no one's paying attention. And the guy takes the phone call <laughs> right in front of him. It's so humiliating. And you're like, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Fire him? What's he going to do? Like, like, like punch him? Like, <laughs> You know, he's, he's just got to go, okay, fine, let's just move on and just try to get this done. And it's such a horrible, boring job. And and yet we've all had those jobs where we're like, this isn't my future. And yet this is what I got to do. So I think what I love the most about that movie is I think, again, you nailed it. I think your analysis is so great that take out the zombies. And it's really about this guy coming into himself. It's really about this guy being okay with who he is realizing he's got strengths, realizing he he's smart and and that he's he's actually a leader and and he's got guts and he's got balls and he's but he, but he's still, you know, and he's loyal and he goes all that way to get that girl who doesn't even want to be with him, you know, um the girlfriend and and her lame buddies and and I think that it's just incredibly charming and my god, I I I got to tell you studios would be so lucky to get to release this movie now. I think this movie would be a bigger hit now than it was then. Um, I think it was kind of ahead of itself, ahead of its time. And, and I, and again, the thing that I admire so much is how much they, they, they made us root. They had us root for these characters across the board. I think that's a real achievement. With a lot of these movies, they did make sequels. So naturally I'm going to gravitate to a couple questions. One, um, they didn't necessarily make sequels to Shaun of the Dead, but they did sort of mm-hmm. made a, 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 a sort of a de facto trilogy. Uh, mm-hmm. With Hot Fuzz and At World's End. And yep. you have Edgar Wright as the director who I think really came into his own with Baby Driver as far as, you know, mastering the techniques that he first attempted and pulled off in Shaun of the Dead. So I'll, I'll just pass this question on t- off to you is what were your thoughts on the two other films in the quote unquote Coronado trilogy? I loved uh, Hot Fuzz. I thought Hot Fuzz was was just as much fun as Shaun of the Dead and just love watching those guys. And I think the whole riff on the action movie, you know, kind of genre was was really funny and again, smart and with characters you root for. I thought the end of the world one, I liked it until we got to the third act and CG took over. Yeah. And I and I think, it, it, again, they all the stuff that they're so strong at doing were terrific in the first two acts. And I, I, I just loved, you know, kind of the pub crawl and the whole thing. And it was just funny and again, character driven and relatable, likable characters. But then we got to the third act. I thought it, that wasn't like it, you know, it ruined it for me, but I think it's just a shame. Like you look at Shaun of the Dead and how they really had to just basically rely upon in camera trickery, you know, and I, and I know there's some, some stuff here and there, but it's pretty, pretty rudimentary. And, and you get in Hot Fuzz too. It was all kind of in camera, mostly fun action. And then it's kind of like these tools. I mean, we could do a whole podcast about what I believe CG has done to filmmaking and to storytelling, you know, cause it's kind of like before it's like, well, we can't really do that without an extra $20 million to build that and blow it up and create the vortex, you know, whatever it is The but with CG, you can, and you can actually do it at various, very, with varying degrees of success that can undermine, you know, your movie. So, um, I did, I didn't like dislike it or hate it or anything, but I felt the third one because of the third act wasn't necessarily as strong as the other two. Fair enough. Yeah. I'll, I'll echo those, those, uh, those statements a hundred percent. Number nine on the list is going to be Die Hard. There's a lot to be said about this film, but I want to take everyone to 1988 when this movie was released. I was 10 years old. 
and I was right at the beginning stages of understanding action films from a 10-year-old's point of view. Up until that point, I think my favorite action... Wait a second, you're allowed to see Die Hard at 10 years old? No, 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 absolutely not. But we all had that friend in the neighborhood whose parents didn't care what films they watched. Uh, Okay, good. All right. And if you're Jason and Chris, if you're listening, way back in Halifax, up in Halifax, thank you. I saw, I got got to see a lot of good movies. Thank God for them. There's a few on this list that I saw, (laughs) thanks to them. That's funny. I remember up until... Up until seeing Die Hard, even at the age of 10, I think my favorite action film was 1985's Commando. And the reason I loved Commando was it was very frequently the ABC Sunday movie of the week. If you remember (laughs) when the ABC Network, yeah. But it was a very heavily edited version of the film, as Mm -hmm. you can imagine. But Mm -hmm. that was my idea of an action movie and an action movie star was, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. He never ran out of bullets. He very, I mean, if he got hurt, it was just a flesh wound. It was nothing. You never had to worry. There was never, uh, and this is a sort of a theme that I echo with the Marvel films. There's never really any stakes at play here with, with these, these 80s action films. But even at 10 years old, I remember watching Die Hard and saying to myself, this is different. This mm-hmm. could be, and this might be a theme that we use with a few films. This film could be deemed groundbreaking in many different ways mm-hmm. in the sense that it was, a normal guy. It was a normal guy in a situation where he did run out of bullets, where he did get hurt. He did get severely injured. And I always like to say that if his wife wasn't at the party at Nakatomi Plaza, I think mm-hmm. he very easily would have found his way down to the first floor, broke a window, <laughs> and got the fuck out of there and let oh, the cops deal with it. He'd have rescued everyone. Come on. <laughs> now, well, we'll talk about that in the sequels. I, I think Die Hard 5, he would have rescued everybody. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah. Die Hard continues to be one of my two favorite action films of all time for, for the, for, for shifting my views on, on what a great action film should be and, and making me understand that when a character is in real peril, that raises the stakes and it makes the set pieces that much more exciting. And I figure mm-hmm. that is why I love, you know, movies where, you know, the, the character is not immortal, is impervious, can get hurt can get killed. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. And I think it makes for an intense movie. And I also think that this movie, and this is again, something we'll mention quite a bit, I think released today as is huge hit, just like it was in 1988. So Phil, I will ask you your thoughts on 1988's Die Hard. Totally agree well, with what you just said. I mean, I, re- I rewatched it for our conversation today and I've seen it many times, of course, but just wanted to get back up to date on it. And I was really struck by how character driven, how likable, how, how much, how invested you are in, in the characters, you know, and, and while what's funny is it's, it's now kind of the, the success of Die Hard gave everyone a template, yeah. you know, to go, to go by. And a lot of films since then have tried to imitate, including Die Hard sequels, have tried to imitate the originality of, of what Die Hard was. And it's, it's pretty interesting rewatching it. Because you realize how unsuccessful most of these films are and and um, compared uh, to the original. And, you know, just Bruce Willis in his prime just brought that got just that great snarky sense of humor. The whole thing he has with Hans. I mean, my favorite part of the movie is actually his relationship with Hans um, over over the radios. I mean, every time they get on the radio together, it's just kind of kind of gold. And it's so funny. They're not even in the room together until Hans pretends 
to be uh, one of the victims, you know, one of the, one of the hostage victims. And, and which again is a great scene, uh, you know, he, he, and where, where, where McLean pretend, you know, lets him convince him. And then of course gives him an, an empty gun and it's, it's, which is great. It's just great. Just haunts his face when he realizes he's been duped, that it's a double dupe. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I agree. I think that it just does a terrific job of setting up everybody, whether it's the limo kid or whether it's the cop that no one listens to, or whether it's the horrible TV anchor or whether, you know, it's his wife and his relationship with her, even in that they had the very first guy that McLean kills is Carl's brother. And so, you know, which infuriates and and infuses in him, not just go kill John McLean because he's in their way so that when they have their final battle, it's personal. And that's why it's so bloody and so violent is because this guy is trying to avenge his, his brother. So I think that, you know, they, it's really, really well done again in the character category. And yeah, it's got all the super smart, fun twists and turns in terms of action. And of course, the most famous one being him running across the glass in his bare feet. You know, you really realize like him at the very end, coming down that tunnel or corridor, dragging his feet, the blood. When he cuts out wide, you can see the smear of the blood, you know, from his wrapped up feet. And, you know, he's going to make the, have the final confrontation with Hans and his wife. And, and uh, you know, so it's really a... Um, it, it was really a, a unique twist on, you know, on the straight up action movie um, or the action hero. I think it I think it does really, really hold up. And it's a lot of fun. I did uh, an episode on the I like to say I did an episode on the Die Hard trilogy because mm. I know I do recognize that there are five films in the Die Hard series. I choose to only recognize the first three. That being said, the reason the reason behind that is because what, by the time we got to the final one, A Good Day to Die Hard. Is that the one in Russia? Yes. Bruce Willis became the action hero of the oh. 1980s that the original Die Hard had put to bed. Correct. Yeah. he. It's so funny. It came full circle to reinstating, yeah, it, the, the very character he had unraveled. It's a really, uh, uh, you know, it's pretty incredible. But I mean, that's, I mean, I think, I think, well, personally, I think cinema has, has done, done that quite a bit in, in many genres. One of my, one of the, I think one of the most interesting facts that I was able to uncover when I was doing my episode on the original Die Hard was that uh, it was based on a book that was published in 1979 by Roderick mm-hmm. Thorpe called Nothing Lasts Forever. And that was actually a follow-up to a book called The Detective. And they had made the movie The Detective starring Frank Sinatra in the 1960s. Wow. And, and so... By the time, you know, the 1980s roll around and they want to make Nothing Last Forever into a film, because of some crazy language in a contract, they were contractually obligated to offer the role to Frank Sinatra because this was technically (laughs) a sequel to The Detective. And Sinatra was 72 years at the time. And in true Sinatra fashion, he he mulled it over for about three weeks. And he had everybody sweating and everybody nervous, and they were just going to have to shut the project down because no one was going to buy a 72-year-old Sinatra in the role of John McClane. So I thought that was one of the more interesting, fun facts I discovered about that movie. That is great. I, it's really funny you say that about the book, though. In watching it this past week, I noticed the book credit as well, and I had never noticed that or it never struck me before that it was – I'd always thought it was original. I always thought it was an original screenplay. And uh, I, only this time did I no, notice that, that book credit, but I didn't know the story about Sinatra. What's interesting is that the first four Die Hard films 
were all spec scripts based on uh, or just based on different properties. Yes, I know. I know the one he did with Sam Jackson was a different. I had actually read it before it was a Die Hard movie. Yeah, I had read it whatever it was originally called. I think it was called and, Simon and it, Says. That's it. I think that's what they were calling it. Yeah, I think so. Don't quote me. I read, I, no, I read it. I was sent it, you know, not, not as like a cold offer to go direct, but I mean, you know, they send scripts out, blah, blah, blah. But, but I had read it and then they came back to me and said, oh no, they're doing it as a diehard movie and they've got their guy. And, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> that was the end of that. So I forgot that though. It was, it was a different script. Can you tell me what your thoughts on Die Hard 2 and uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance? I didn't, you know, I just didn't prefer them. I, I'm not a huge sequel guy. Um, we may have talked about that before. I just always feel like the original surprise of discovering a character and, you know, um, going on that first journey with him or her is special. And that's what to me and surprising. And that's what entertainment, I think, should be. And once you kind of know, once they start using the tropes of the character and, and you know, the, the signature lines and the, I mean... You know, the second one and this, yeah, that's right. The second one was the airport, right? And the third one was with Sam Jackson. Yeah. So I, I, um, it's fine. I saw them, I saw them both in the theater. Like I went, but they did not hold the, um, the thrill for me that the original Die Hard did. You know, I, I do struggle with sequels because they remind me of television. You know, they remind me of, okay, you know who the character is, you know, all the stuff you're supposed to know. And now we're just going to watch them do another episode. Yeah. And I, cause it's by nature episodic. It's slightly different when you're building a trilogy, you know, like like the original Star Wars. Um, although what's funny is I always thought the first one really was a standalone movie and only when he got the opportunity to do two and three to, to become a trilogy. Because really, I thought the first one stood as a complete film, beginning, middle, end. Whereas, you know, Empire is clearly a middle, a great film, but I'm saying still clearly a middle film of a three film structure. Same, obviously, with all Lord of the Rings films, which I enjoyed. So when you're doing that, that's different. I don't consider that sequel. That's a by design, you know, going in, it's meant to be, go over an arc of three, of three, you know, connected stories. When they just cash in on the success of something, I, I struggle with it. I'm, I, I can't, I'm hard pressed to think of a film besides Godfather 2 where I felt it stood, it stood up next to the original. Of all the movies that were the quote die hard on a plane, die hard on a bus, yeah. die hard on I will I will say for the record that the Die Hard on a Ship under Siege I thought was a really fun movie. Uh -huh. and, and I, I also very much like Speed, and that is yes. a stay tuned for speed everyone. Too. Yeah. So. I enjoyed Speed too. Speed as well, not Speed Two, the Correct. sequel. <laughs> um, and again, for the same reason as Speed Two on a boat, I'm just like, what? They're on jet skis? <laughs> But, but yeah. the, again, but again, what was great about it is it's Sandra Bullock. You completely root for her. It's going to be a theme throughout the think this podcast is that I love movies with characters you can root for and or at least are so crazy and weird and intriguing that you're completely captivated by them, even if they're not necessarily, quote unquote, good guys. And um, so anyway, yeah, I agree. Hey everybody, this is Mike Gallagher from the Amateur All Tours podcast. I first began working with Dana roughly back in June of 2018, when he agreed to come onto my show for an interview and discussion about all things film. I'm not gonna lie, I was a little starstruck throughout my interview with Dana back in June. I mean, this was THE Dana Buckler, the host and creator of one of my favorite podcasts, and he's talking to me. Soon after my own interview, I was lucky enough to have Dana invite me back to help him tackle the Star Wars franchise on his own show. And if I thought it was surreal to actually talk to Dana, how do you guys think I felt being on the actual show? 
It was an awesome feeling. During my time working with Dana, I learned a lot about podcasting from him, but I also learned a lot about Dana and who he was as a person, his drive, his motivation, his passion. It really is inspiring, and his example has pushed me to make my own show that much better. I want to congratulate Dana for reaching this incredible milestone, and I can't wait to see what the future holds for us fans. Keep on podcasting, Dana. Now, number eight is one that I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on because I just did a two-part extended conversation with uh, writer Kelly Goodner. We discussed the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise at great length, but I would be remiss if I did not include this on my list of my 10 favorite films or the 10 films that impacted me the most because the original Nightmare on Elm Street, which was released in 1984, which I saw in 1985 on VHS, thanks to my brother. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a very traumatic movie for me, and it impacted me, and it's still something to this day as a 40-year-old that you will not be able to get me alone with the lights off watching that original movie by myself. I just can't do it. I, I think it's a horror masterpiece. I think it's a psychological thriller. I think it's all that rolled into one. Can't say that about really any of the sequels. But I think it should come as no surprise to the listeners that Elm Street, the original, is on my list of my 10 favorite films. Your thoughts on the movie? Oh, obviously, it's a classic. It's a horror classic and and uh, groundbreaking and, and original in, in so many ways. I mean, I think, you know, what's really cool about that film is that it really it's kind of the horror of the dreamscape, which, which is really interesting. And then it, and then it crosses the line into reality. Is it a dream? Is it real? And I think it was one of the first films to really dig down deep and, and use that, uh, as, as its structure. I think that, uh, that's what I really like about it. I really loved that there was the surreal elements of the dream. It wasn't just, I mean, I loved the original Halloween. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I saw that opening night in the theater. People were standing on their feet and screaming, standing, jumping out of their chairs and screaming into the darkness. It was, it was one of the most incredible screenings I've ever been to of any movie, the original Halloween. So, I mean, I love that movie, but, it, but then all the, all of them came out, you know, Friday the 13th and the slasher and the slasher and the slasher. And I think that, What's so great about Nightmare on Elm Street, as well, it has all those scares. It's still very, very stylish because you're going, you know, these girls skipping rope. What the hell is that about? You know what I mean? Um, And doing a little nursery rhyme that opened and closed the movie. I mean, the one thing watching it again for this podcast, though, is, and I have a funny aside for you at the the end of this, but I think I would have held back showing Freddy's face as early as the film does. I think I would have gone a little more... Spielberg Jaws, you know, holding back the shark a little bit and watching it again. He's such a great, you know, I mean, obviously not the hands and the razors and all that, but I think I would have kept him a little more mysterious and built into, oh my God, that's what he looks like. Cause it's so horrible that that was my only thought this time. I was like, Ooh, I kind of wish they'd held him back a little longer. Just, just Freddie. Right. Um, I don't know why that struck me, but it did. And, um, but I love her on the ceiling, you know, and then the bed with the, the upside down set with the bed, you know, the opening up in the hole, you know, Johnny Depp getting sucked and Johnny Depp's hair. You just got it. That alone. Yeah, sure. The price of admission. Yeah. Just just that. But you you, um, <laughs> you know, getting sucked into the bed and the hole and the blood flying out of the bed and onto the ceiling and just how clever that was. And, and you cannot. I don't think, you know, and listen, this is not I'm not saying this from a. I'm saying from a vulnerable point of view, not a sexual point of view, his, her, the lead girl's name is going to escape me in the bathtub 
with his clawed hand coming up from the water. And all of you have seen the film. Remember the shot I'm talking about. That is, and it's not violent. It's not, it's just him, the hand in the water and they go swoop back down when the mom comes and knocks on the door. I mean, you're just like, oh, it's the thought of where it's going to go. It's more powerful than where it goes. Yeah. And then him yanking her down eventually into the water in that underwater shot, you know, like with the hole up above, which is obviously the tub and how, how great that is and how dreamlike that is, how that's very, very authentically, I think, you know, archetypical dream material. There's so much, there's so many things to, to, to recommend about that movie. Um, and, and, but, mo- but most of all, it's like just the conceptually is why I respect it so much. So I think it was so unique in that regard. And the little side I mentioned was, um, I was actually offered to direct the remake of, uh, Nightmare, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, the one that, that Michael Bay's company did. It got to where I almost did it. And I had very mixed feelings about, about doing that because first of all, the first one was a classic. I, I didn't think you could beat it, but I was also at a place in my career at the time that things were slow and it's kind of like, well, you know, it's definitely going to get a big release. It's definitely going to get noticed and it's, it's not going to go, you know, onto the shelf. This is one they're going to get behind. And, and as we all know, that's, that's hard to come by these days. So, uh, but in the end, in the end, uh, I would, I w- almost did it. And then Michael's close friend, Sam Bear, who did direct it, popped up out of nowhere and had read it and wanted to do it. And, and Michael, Michael went with his buddy and, and that was the end of the story. But, uh, and I'm actually now looking back, glad I didn't, <laughs> I mean, I was like, you know, and I, and I was kind of relieved even a little bit at the time. I was very much on the fence. It's interesting because that movie came out in 2010. So it's mm. been eight years from that. And it is not, it is not in the lexicon of discussions of Elm Street films. Uh, no. Fre- Freddy versus Jason still is. That's still a movie mm. that people talk about. 15 years out, but the, uh, the 2010, no, no, it didn't work out at all. And, uh, I remember seeing, I remember you correct me if I'm wrong, but Sam bear, this was his first feature film. He, he was, Mm -hmm. he was famous for directing smells like teen spirit, the Nirvana film. Nirvana videos are kind of his most famous. He's done a few of those or a couple of those and, and a lot of huge commercials that you, you would recognize if you saw his stuff. He's very, very big in the commercial wheels, uh, commercial world. So Michael knew him from that. I know they had a lot of struggles making the movie. The DP who did a Gridiron Gang shot it. And okay. so I heard a lot about the struggles they had making the film. And and I just think it was one of those um, problematic productions. That's interesting. Which didn't help, which didn't help matters. But I don't, I don't know that that's what held it back from, from working. I think that, that the first one was the one. That's all there is to it. I think they went to go back the, 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 from what my impressions of the film, because I've only actually seen it one time. It's not a movie I actually have any yeah. interest in revisiting, but I saw it in the theater opening day. I mean, I was mm-hmm. a big Elm Street guy, so I saw it and I, re- I, I respected the fact that they tried to go back to sort of the scary elements of the mm-hmm. original one. But uh, it just, yeah, it does, it didn't work. Hey, everybody, it's me, The Vern, from the Cinema Recall Podcast, here to wish my dear friend, Dana Butler, a happy anniversary of your podcast. How is this movie? Many great episodes you've done, sir. You are a film scholar when it comes to telling us about the history of movies and how they came to be. Probably one of my favorite ones you've done is on the Alien series. Uh, I love your episodes when you rant 
about your movie-going experiences. Uh, my favorite episode you've done of that wasn't necessarily a rant. Uh, it was an episode where you told us about a story. You were going to be screening a copy of American Pie. You worked at a theater, and you only wanted to have just a few people show up for it. But then Hell Broke Loose and a whole bunch of the people showed up that weren't necessarily invited and it turned into this big party and you were trying to clean up the mess before the boss shows up and it's a lot of fun. I don't know what episode number that was and I wish I did, but that's probably one of my favorite shows of that. Uh, so once again, Dana, wanted to say happy anniversary of your show. Uh, very glad that you're doing this podcast. I hope you continue for another 10 years or so. And I wanted to say uh, thank you again. And I hope you have a great day. Bye. Number seven on the list is going to be True Romance. Mm. Now, I've always had an interesting relationship with Tony Scott films, uh, going back to, let's see, Top Gun in 86 and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Uh, the I like to say the uh, the grossly underrated Days of Thunder, which I think is one of the so bad it's good movies. And mm -hmm. um, but that's <laughs> that's just. But True Romance was different, was different for me, and it is something that you have have always touched on when we've had conversations about characters and rooting for characters. And you're introduced to Clarence Worley, Christian Slater's character, and again, again, I just it's somebody I was immediately able to relate to, somebody who who. Who had a, a you know sort of a encyclopedic knowledge of movies and, and, and in the case of his character comic books and and just a little bit of he he was sort of a streetwise guy who was incredibly smart at the same time. Again, the dynamics between his character and and Patricia Arquette's character Alabama. And I want to preface all of this by saying that when I saw True Romance, I really didn't know that Tarantino had any involvement as far as being the person who wrote the script. This is a movie that I could just follow these two characters and Scott could have directed a romance movie, a pure romance movie. And I think I would have been invested just on the way the first 15 minutes of this movie plays out. That being said, this is one of the more epic films that I've ever seen as far as how big Scott goes with the storytelling elements of it and how many characters are int int introduced and how many singular scenes, the entire scene with Gary Oldman's character as Drexel <laughs> just is, I mean, you want to see a movie with Drexel. I mean, he'd be, he, and, and he's only, you want to see Christopher Walken's character is in it for a total of 11 minutes and you mm -hmm. want to see a movie with this guy in it. I mean, it is such, it is so chalk filled with interesting characters and unbelievably interesting moments and an ending which is so batshit off the wall crazy that you immediately yeah. want to rewatch the movie. It's I don't even know how to describe it. A love story, an action film, a thriller, a gangster film. I mean, it is all this rolled into comedy. one a, a comedy, of course, yes. Wonderfully comedic elements in it. And it is a very unique film and that's the best way i can describe it in a great way and it's one that i have rewatched at least once a year phil your thoughts on true romance i yeah i think it is incredibly original and and you know really was you know another just example of Tar tarantino's unique voice obviously um although i would have loved to have seen i'm a tony scott fan too but i i have to admit i'd love to have seen what quentin tarantino would have done yeah. directing it himself i think that would have been Real interesting, I think it would have been very different, actually. I think the execution would have been 
you couldn't stylistically they're 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 very different directors. It's funny, I was actually uh, on the set of that film uh, for all of Gary Oldman's scenes. Um, Gary and I had done State of Grace and we became very close after that. He would invite me down because, you know, there's a lot of downtime in between shots and things, you know, so he'd say, come on down to the set. So I got to see him film uh, both of those scenes, uh, those early scenes um, that in the film, Drexel. And, and I was just like, and I remember watching going, what in the hell is going on here? You know, Gary with the dreads and the teeth and the eyeball and the scars and the guys just like what is this movie about i hadn't read the script but yeah i mean again i agree i think the thing i like the most about it are the characterizations you know each all the individual characters you've already mentioned and i i just think that everybody gets something juicy and fun to do you know even even the you know joel silver's producer's assistant you know like there's just like everyone what tarantino's so good at is he doesn't waste scenes you know so gandolfini is just like a thug in the background of the scene between um, Hopper and Walken. He's just back there in a couple cuts. You know, like, oh my God, it's James Gandolfini. He's like, Ugh. And then later on, you know, he's going to show up and go after Alabama in a horrible, horribly violent scene, what he does to her. I, I, I felt that, personally, I felt that went too far for yeah, me. I agree. So I just, on, on, for beating up a girl, I was just not, I just don't like that kind of stuff. That's why I, the violence against women <laughs> in that particular scene, especially, was a bit much for me. But, he gives him like, you know, this great moment at the end and, you know, where they they face off with each other and he ends up kind of respecting her and then she ends up nailing him and he's so shocked and dismayed. And and so nothing goes wasted. Nothing goes wasted in in that story. Everyone, including the crazy producer in the end, gets their their due. And, and I think that's, that's my favorite thing. Even, even Brad Pitt in that one scene, you know, where he's talking when they show up at the, you know, when Gandolfini shows up, he gets like his little, like, and that's pretty amazing because movies have a lot of, most movies have a lot of filler in them. You got to get from A to B and B to C and C and then boom, something exciting. Um, it's like, I think John Ford said, if you have five scenes, you can remember at, after you've you know walked out of a movie, you've made a, you've made a successful and exciting and I think he even said a hit film, you know, that that and I think, boy, true romance has more than five. And and I think that a lot more than five. And I most Tarantino movies do that. I think that's one of his really I, want, I think that's his kind of secret weapon is that pound for pound, scene for scene, he's going to give everyone something. He just doesn't waste scenes and, and they're just chock full of memorable moments. And I think that's, that's, what's great about true romance. And this, this is going to sort of roll into sort of some of the honorable mentions that I had, I was talking to you earlier, but before I do that, by the way, uh, listeners, these stories he's telling about, you know, being on the set with Gary Oldman and all that. I didn't know any of this. I'm hearing this for the first time as well. And I think it's terrific. I just want to point that out. Like him being offered the nightmare in Elm Street. Uh, this wasn't like we discussed this and he's like, Oh, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell this story and I'll tell this one. So, you know, my reaction is the same as you like, Oh, no shit. No kidding. Okay. That's <laughs> incredible. But the honorable mentions for, for my list here is going to be everything that Tarantino has done. But I really did settle on true romance, even mm -hmm. though he didn't direct it. It's, it's certainly got his fingerprints all over it. Well, yeah. And, it, and what you said in the beginning is that each one of these held some special place in your story, yeah. you know, your life at the moment where you were at. And I think that that's kind of what's what's important about this list, because, yeah, when it comes to Tarantino, we could list four or five more movies and yeah. put them on here easily. And and uh, but I think this is the one that struck you and, and was important to you personally. And yeah. I think that's what's really cool about this list. When I first got this, I was like, oh, wow, what an interesting 
kind of selection, you know, because typically, you know, we all know that at least five of the 10, you're probably going to say, but these were all unique yeah. and different and surprising in, in each, in its own, its own way. And so I think that's, what's really cool about this. So the, um, the one thing I'll to just close out the discussion about true romance is from what I was able to research when I did an episode on true romance, um, this was one of the first scripts that Tarantino wrote. He had wrote Reservoir Dogs. He wrote Natural Born Killers and True Romance. And he had sold uh, two to make one, basically. And from what I understand, Tarantino, the script for True Romance was told in a non-linear style, which is typical of all Tarantino films. Well, most Tarantino <laughs> films. And I guess he was a little bit put off by the fact that he told a straightforward continuity narrative as far as what Tony Scott did. But you mentioned you I had heard that. I remember hearing that, too, that he was I want to say mildly because I don't I don't know him personally, so I can't really say how how disappointed he was. But I heard that he was irked by the by how it came out. And I can kind of once you see now that we've all seen Tarantino's own films, you can completely see why you, you just know he'd have done his thing to it, which would have been fascinating. Yeah. And Tony just has a very strong vision of of the way he he used to make his movies, and so um, you know, there's just different. There's just it's just very different. I even think the same thing about Natural Born Killers and Oliver Stone. I think that I would have much rather seen Quentin Tarantino's version of that. Absolutely. And I love, like, I love the cast. You know, I mean, I think that the cast in that movie is spectacular. I mean, I love Woody Harrelson, and you know, so it's not that. I would love to see that cast directed. By Tarantino, much more than by Oliver Stone. Absolutely. That's just me. Number six on the list for listeners is an episode that just came out about two months ago. Uh, that was uh, on the movie Swingers. And I touched on in that episode how this was a movie that by this point I had just moved to Florida. And I was I was in a town where I didn't really know anyone. I had met some friends. And this is the 90s. So going out and socializing meant going out and sitting at a bar having drinks, having conversation, meeting interesting people, meeting, you know, trying to meet women. Cause let's be honest, we're, I was in my early twenties at the time. Guys don't go out with guys to, you know, yeah. guys with guys to meet other girls. That's, sure. That's, sure. That's, but there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but what I loved about that movie then is different. What I love about that movie now and what that movie is, is a snapshot in time of a period that no longer exists. Yeah. Because when I would go out with my friends in the nineties, we didn't have phones. We weren't right. buried in smartphones. We were we were buried in conversation. And we so were, and what I just love about this movie is, you know, this was an honest depiction of what it was like for people in the nineties, both guys and girls. You know, things have ch so drastically changed. But when I watched this film in ninety in nine when I watched this film in the nineties, I was watching myself. My friends and I, we would watch this movie every night before we would go out. We would almost we would mimic the dialogue <laughs> of them. We would tell each other oh, that your money, your money, your money, your money, no, your money. <laughs> you know, we we would we would do the swing dancing with with girls. I mean, we would buy the big bad voodoo daddy CDs, and you know because. It was so, I want to say we were emulating, but we actually saw a movie that was what we were going through. Now, mind you, I wasn't a struggling actor in Los Angeles. I was a struggling nightclub DJ in Florida. But besides that, the parallels were, were exactly the same. And it's so, like I mentioned in the episode I did on Swingers, watching it now, it's watching it with such a fondness for a period of time that I experienced that will never come back, no matter 
how much we try to go back to retro, you know, retro styles. That's just a period that doesn't exist anymore. So, Phil, what are your thoughts on swingers? Well, I, I agree with everything we just said. I think it's really fascinating that it's funny in rewatching it. It's a particular insight that didn't strike me, which which should have, which is, yes, I mean, you take cell phones out of it. You know, you take the whole idea that we used to come home uh, from a night out or work and who was on your answering machine. It was like this countdown, like yeah. like uh, it is in the movie. And, you know, you know, it's your mom, it's your sister, it's someone from work, beep, and the next thing, beep, the next thing, beep, and you're hoping it's the the girl you just met, or you're hoping it's your ex, or, and I went through a whole thing with an ex that back then, too, and in the 90s, and, and you know, you're waiting, is it going to be, is it going to, and then it isn't, and, um, and the whole thing of, I mean, that's one of my favorite things in the movie, is him then leaving the message, and then realizing he, it beat too early on him and then he's got to call back because the, the number didn't go through and Favreau is just going and it just by the time and then it goes obviously into the comedic into the ridiculous and when he's like I think this isn't going to work out for me <laughs> like the, he breaks up the relationship be, before you know like seven phone calls on a machine but it's still like um it, it is an era that's come and gone period I mean I mean sure people go out and and still try to meet in bars and still do a lot of that stuff but I think like the whole texting thing rather than even calling, let alone face to face, you know, kind of having to and just the, the, the Tinder and all that stuff, you know, which, which I didn't go through in my, in my dating career and, um, <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it. And, and, and so I think that it is really kind of like some, you know, anthropo anthropological study of like, you know, the species before technology sucked the soul out of, uh, you know, human interaction. And so that is what's really special. About it. Again, I, I, I love the, um, you know, to me, just the funniest thing is just looking at Favreau, you know, and just thinking of like that guy and who he is now, you know, doing the Star Wars series and the, the the voice of the little monkey guy and Han Solo and the Jungle Book. I mean, who would have thought that that's where it would go? You know, Iron Man. And I just it's just you don't look at that guy in that movie. Vince Vaughn, you can kind of see, OK, there's a fast talking comedic actor. If you harness that, you're going to get wedding crashers. You know, you're going to get, you know, um, you're going to get a lot of great comedic opportunities with that guy. And so I think of the trajectory of his life and I go, you know, makes sense. But I just, Favreau just blows my mind and Heather Graham, you know, who we will, who we're going to meet up in this list shortly again. Um, and just to think of the contrast between the arc between this movie and a movie you're about to mention. I think that, that I really enjoy, I, I mean, I really enjoy the movie for its heart and its humanity and like that it's, that it ends up being about, you know, simple personal connection and that the geeks, this guy's a geek and he's always going to be a geek and he doesn't know what, what to say or do or how to do it. And he meets a girl who, who's also doesn't know what to say or how to do it. And they both just guy, and eh, I'm supposed to wait the two days. I know I'm supposed to do the, screw this. I like you, you like me, you want to go out to dinner and, or get a cup of coffee. And I think that the simple, kind of the simple, uh, nature of that really is like uh, feels like a bygone age. I'm sure it's still happening. You know what I mean? I'm sure it's still happening out there. I just think it's it's uh, I don't know. I think it's just a lot, lot different. And this movie captures how different it was. Absolutely. Number five on the list. This one is important film to me because this is a movie that changed a lot of different ways that I looked at cinema. 
Now to take the listeners to, I want to take the listeners first to 1996. This is the year that I turned 18. This is the year that I moved out on my own. I had my own apartment and I purposely picked an apartment that was within walking distance of a multiplex. That was, that was a prerequisite to based on where I was going to live. So the summer of 96, that was the year that I was going to the movies three times a week. That was the year that I didn't have to ask my parents, Hey, I'm, can I go to the movies? This is the year I started crunching cinema, but I wasn't, I wasn't crunching compelling cinema. I was watching movies like the rock twister independence day. I mean, just, uh, I even saw strip tease in the theater that year. I mean, I was just seeing everything. It's- everything. I, I love Carl Hyacinth. So, so I couldn't wait. But, then, I, uh, but, but when I say everything, I was, I'm talking the nutty professor, but 1997 rolls around. And that's the first time that I'm introduced to a smaller sort of art house theater that was in the city that I lived in. And I went to go see a movie called Boogie Nights. I did not know who Paul Thomas Anderson was. I hadn't heard mm-hmm. of his previous work, Hard Eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did know, I did, I knew two characters. I, I really, I knew two actors in the movie. I knew who Burt Reynolds was and I knew who Mark Wahlberg was. And I didn't, I, I knew this was the porn movie. That's what people were saying. Yeah. So I go see this movie and what struck me about it first and foremost was I was the only one in the theater. And I remember that was the very first time in my life that I ever saw a movie by myself in a cinema. Now, 21 years later, it would be my ideal setting to see a movie by myself in the theater. <laughs> but that's a discussion for a whole nother podcast. Yes. But this was a movie that made me understand what a slow burn was. It made me understand what it meant for a, a story to take its time and really, really develop characters. And and these are all in, in many ways and shapes and forms anti-heroes uh, across the board. But you cared so much about them that you were going to see this story all the way through to the end. And this movie could have gone on another four hours and I would have been fully vested mm-hmm. in what, what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. And it changed how I looked at movies. And it really opened my eyes to go back and revisit a lot of movies from the 70s because this movie reminded me of a lot of films. You know, now it reminds me of a lot of films in the 70s that took its time to really develop characters. So Boogie Nights is, uh, again, a movie that I rewatch quite a bit. It's a movie that I did a three-part retrospective look at on my show back in 2015. And um, I just think it's an exceptional film that still holds up. And my, I guess my only regret is that Burt Reynolds still, I mean, R.I.P. Burt, still is not proud of his work that he did in this film. And it's, oh, he's a nut. And it's such a great movie. Rest so soul, he's a nut. I would love for you to take me back to 1997. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'd love for you to take me back to 1997 and take me through your first experiences of seeing this film and your thoughts on the movie overall. My first experience was that I was extremely jealous uh, because it is an absolutely great film. And, and, I, and I mean, like, just mind-bogglingly great and and it holds up i just saw it again this week and it's it's just you know i mean we all know who uh, paul thomas anderson is now i i knew of heart eight i'd seen heart eight and i knew he was talented i'd actually met him a few times and talked over his struggles on heart eight and all the fights he went through and some of the similar fights i'd gone through on some films and i liked him he's a great guy and and uh but i just i just felt that um God, I could do a, th- a three-part podcast on it right there with you. 
Um, so to to be succinct about it, I mean, again, I think I'll come back to the characters. You, what's interesting is that while it may be in the porn world, and while you know, kind of like you were saying about Sean, what we we're saying about Shaun of the Dead, if you take the zombies out of Shaun of the Dead, and I think if you take the porn out of Boogie Nights, it's really about working class people struggling to to make to make it work, to make ends meet, to to you know, the Don Cheadle character, you know, he's trying to fulfill his dream. You know, he just wants to have a little stereo shop. Jesus, you know, how hard can it be? Well, the answer is it's hard. And, you know, John C. Riley just glomming on to this guy because he just wants to be accepted and kind of wants to be, he just wants to be the classic sidekick. And you, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, falling in love with him and that just such that, that touching and just kind of so awkward scene where he kisses him and then he's just freaks out. He's just, you know, berating himself in the car, um, it's incredible, you know, uh, um, and and just the matter of fact nature of the pornography, you know, um, the way Roller Girl is about it. Oh, you know, we're going to have sex. Those aren't her words, but, you know, they're going to, you know, and he's like, yep, let's go. And then they go for it. And of course, most of all, Mark Wahlberg, you know, that opening shot that leads to him as a busboy, you know, that that really says it all. You know, here's like the fabulous world all around him. And he's just a shaggy-haired loser, essentially. Is it, you, you, the look on his face is that, and I'm a loser. Hmm. And the next thing you know, Reynolds spots him across the room. Kind of the rest is history, if you will. And I and I think that, uh, and that great scene with Thomas Jane and Alfred Molina and the kids popping off the firecrackers, and you know, there's, it, it just it just goes on and on and on. And I think very similar to True Romance is that there are no wasted scenes. Every single scene is kind of a jaw dropper. Every single scene is is just kind of off the charts crazy. I mean, um, William Macy coming into the house on New Year's Eve and they're all counting down and he's just finally fed up I mean, with his wife who's having sex in like alleyways with crowds watching her. It's just Incredible. And I think that why it works is is that you you completely do relate to these people's struggles as being incredibly human. And the hubris, you know, kind of the arc of going from nothing to the star to nothing. And then that typically would have been the ending of most movies, would have been Mark Wahlberg's done. He got what he deserved. You know, he, he flew too close to the sun. And but no, but then he comes back and wants to be a part of the family. And that's really the message at the end is that they're a family and the family sticks together. And I think that, that all of that, you know, much like, much like what Coppola did with the Godfather and making the Godfather about family. I think that, that what Paul Thomas Anderson did is he made Boogie Nights is really about a family and a family of kind of misfits who get pulled together on this kind of misfit Island of the porno world over it, over at um, the house, you know, Burt Reynolds house it just blew my mind when I saw it and uh, still does. There's a particular scene in that movie that I always try to, I always call back to. And I remember seeing it in 97 in the theater. And it was the scene with Thomas Jane and Alfred Molina and John C. Riley when they're in the mm. house doing the drug deal. And there's a, there's a particular shot. It's a medium shot of Mark Wahlberg, the song Jesse's Girl is playing. And it holds that shot for almost a minute. And just stares off. Just stares. Just staring off and staring off and staring off and, and staring and, and off. What, what I think I, I, well, how I've always interpreted that scene and how it was for me was it was the moment of reflection for him when he realized that everything that he has done has led him to this moment. And I think 
Anderson holds the shot long enough for us as the audience to reflect on everything he's done that has led us to that moment. And I think it's one of the most powerful scenes in a very powerful movie. It's the one that always gets me. I agree totally. And that shot struck me as just being so, so you talk about directors having a vision and people say a lot, Oh, he's got a vision. They've got a vision. That's a vision. Mm. Okay. Because that isn't, that isn't just coverage. He decided to hold a beat longer. That is a choice. I am telling everyone that he knew Paul Thomas Anderson knew and directed Mark Wahlberg. They all knew what that shot was going to mean that it's like, it's all come to this and it's about to go off a cliff. Yeah. And everyone in that room could be dead in 15 seconds and almost, almost are. And certainly Thomas Jane's character is, I mean, he even abandons uh, John C. Riley goes running off into the bushes. You know, I, I always remember thinking that he was going to pull over and save him, whatever, but he does. He just, you know, he jumps in that Corvette and takes off and runs out of gas. And I think that, yeah, it's, it's really, God, it's so interesting that you pick that moment and that shot because you're watching that and you just go, this guy is in total control of the narrative and of the characters and of, you know, the, the, of the power of cinema right there, right there. And great directors and great movies do that. And I always remind people when they kind of, it's easy to make fun of Mark Wahlberg with all some of the, the, the cheeky movies that he makes. But I always remind people, you know what, if you need to be reminded of how good he can be, watch Boogie Nights. Oh, that, that scene where he says, you're not the boss of me, I'm the boss of me when he finally has it out with Burt Reynolds. And it looks like, like he goes after Reynolds and Reynolds on his side is kind of shocked. Like Reynolds, the actor yeah. is shocked by how aggressive, like, you don't talk to me that way, kid, which is the brilliance of the acting. I mean, I'm sorry, the casting is that a lot of Reynolds acting in that movie is Bert going, who are all these punk idiots? I am so above all this. I am so much smarter. I am so much better. I am so much more sexual. Do you realize I was the biggest star in the world 15 years running? Who are you punks? Yeah. And what has my career come to that I'm stooping to this crap, which is why he has that feeling about it. It didn't feel good to be that guy. It didn't feel good to play that character. He wasn't, you know, it's not, he wasn't the bandit. And, and he just couldn't believe he was being treated that way. And that's what makes it so wonderful. And he deserved the Oscar for that movie. Yeah. And uh, Reynolds and, and who I understand, you know, it was really tough to work with on that show on, 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 on Boogie Nights, but holy crap, you'd never know watching the movie. You'd have thought he was all in. Yep. You'd have thought Reynolds thought this was the greatest thing he'd been in since God knows what in 20 years. But instead he resisted it because it – and that's the brilliance of, of Anderson tapping into his persona. And that's always what Burt played was his persona and using it kind of against him and for the movie. And uh, yeah, but Wahlberg, when he goes after him and he's just freaking out and when they have their falling out. It's like, yeah. I'm ready to do the scene. I'm ready to do the scene. I'm going to do it now. Do it now. I'm ready to do it, man. I'm ready to do it now. You can't stop me. You're not the boss of me. I'm like, wow, where has that guy been? It's there. It's there. It's just the movies aren't there for him. I mean, Mark, if he wanted to, could still do all that. It's just the movies aren't there and those aren't his choices. And the truth is they're really, but I mean, if, if Mark Wahlberg, so you can, if this gets too long, you feel absolutely as always feel free to cut down. But Mark Wahlberg, if you put him in like, um, uh, what's, oh, a uh, true detective, Exactly. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you'd have put him in, you know, I don't know, it would have been different than McConaughey, but if you put him in one of those series, I'm sure he'd be incredible. Yeah. You know, 
Um, and I, and I'm, and I'm, he has all that in him. I really believe that. I, th- I think he's a, always been a really interesting actor. It's just that, you know, you know, nowadays movies are just much more of a, um, marketing commodity than, than they were even, you know, quite clearly when Boogie Nights was made. Yeah. Yeah. Never, ever get made as a feature film today. No, period. no. And one final thought on that is, you know, we talk about Burt Reynolds and, you know, uh, P.T. Anderson is famous for for working with basically an, an, an ensemble group of actors throughout the yeah. movies. And, and from what I understand, that an, an invitation was never extended to Burt Reynolds for any other movie that Anderson did, even after Reynolds got all the accolades you know, you know, rightfully deserved, you know, winning the Golden Globe as well. I mean, but he just never extended that invitation to work with him again. No, of course not. So Although it would have been really cool to see him in uh, Tarantino's new movie that he unfortunately yeah. Yeah, that's... didn't get to do. Because I mean, I was a fan. I, I mean, I even as weird as Burt became. Um, and I just think that, you know, he was just I think, you know, again, what do I know? I don't know the man, but you, you felt like he was kind of bitter about how it how it played aging played out well guess what Bert? none of us <laughs> no one gets out of life alive Bert. that's what i like it's like i have to have bad news for everybody yeah. we're all dying uh, <laughs> yep it's exactly and and so the, but the point the point still is is that he still had it he yeah. still had it and that's the thing he should have realized that movie showed is that he regardless of whatever he thought of the experience and i and i understand that set could be wild there was a lot of improv a lot on there's a lot of improv going on and, and that's why john c Riley and him are so you know, I had done City Grace John C. Riley, so I knew about the making of the movie. And John is one of the all time as he's now proven with Will Ferrell, and we all know this obviously, but at the time people didn't realize this guy can improv on anything. And you just look at those scenes now and you realize how much John C. Riley brought to it and how much he was allowed to. And I think that probably freaked out Bert a little bit. Like, none of this is in the script, man. Like, what's going on? I'm sure each day he was like, half of what we're doing isn't in the script, <laughs> you yeah. know? And I'm sure in his day, it was like, you know, six pages a day. We ripped through it. Him and Hal Needham were like, let's go, baby. You know, and, and uh, you know, right? You know, yeah. they were just like, you know, we got it. <laughs> One take. We got it. You know, Paul's probably like, take 14. Do anything, everyone. Bert Reynolds like, what the hell? You know, freaking out. But uh, uh, well, I don't understand what's happening in this shot. And he's like, just go, Bert. Just go. Just go with it. Steady cam action. And he's like, ah. You know, and I, of course it all worked and and that's a and it's a it's an incredible uh, hi this is margo p of book versus movie and this is margo d of book versus movie and you know one of the great things about being a podcaster is the friendships that you make with other people in the podcasting world Absolutely. And Dana Buckler has been so supportive of our show from day one when you and I didn't even know what we were doing. And I was astonished because his show is so fantastic. He has that incredible, I would say, NPR style voice. And he does his research. He knows what he's doing. His shows are always beautifully produced. And I was always shocked that he took attention to us and he wrote us reviews and he was always so encouraging. And he's celebrating his fifth anniversary right now. So Dana, Margo and I, we just want to wish you congratulations. Congratulations, and here's to five more years. Absolutely, and thank you so much for supporting us, and all the best, all the best for five more years. Five more years! Five more years! So the next one on my list, I again, I have to take take everyone, listeners, on a journey back to 1991. Mm-hmm. And this, is what I, this is what I need for everyone to understand. I know I had never seen the movie Aliens by that point. I had not seen The Abyss by that point. What? No, I know, I know. As as a thirteen year old, I had I, not seen. Can understand aliens. That's a shame. Okay, that, that was a shame. I'll I'll admit. 
in August of 1991, my dad came home early from work one day. And, and, and to understand this is to understand that my mother had very, very strict rules as far as what we are allowed to watch. Again, this is why we had to go to my friend's house to watch mm-hmm. anything of interest. Uh, my dad came home from work one early Wednesday afternoon in August and told my brother, who's just a little bit older than me, that, you know, we're going to go to the movies, but don't tell your mother. And well, that was very exciting news. So we piled into the family station wagon. We drove to the mall and my dad, I remember walking up to the box office and my dad saying, one adult, two chi- two children for Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Now, I knew what this movie was. You couldn't avoid this movie in the in the summer of 91. Everyone knew what this was. My friends, some of my friends had already seen it. They had parents that had, had you taken- seen the original. I'm sorry to interrupt. Had you seen the original Terminator or no? I had I had seen part bits and pieces of it on TV. So I, I, I kind of knew, I kind of knew the story. I kind of knew, but this was, this was something I was not going to be able to see. This was never something that I was going to, I was, I had accepted the fact I would never see this movie in the theater. So for my dad to take my brother and I to secretly go see this movie, I'm 13 years old, you know, Mm -hmm. in his eyes, I was old enough to see this. Yeah, now, I think he made. I think he made a good call. It's it's like that's okay. But mom, if you're listening, which I'm sure you are, mm. the secret's out of the bag. Some yep. twenty seven years later. So, wow. But I can you, tell you this: you never told your mom. I don't. Well, I mean, I'm sure I have eventually, but I don't think it's you know it. But you know, that's good. I kept that secret. So, but what do I need to say about Terminator Two: Judgment Day? What do I need to say? about seeing it as a 13-year-old in the theater. It was the first R-rated film I was ever I ever saw in the movie theater. And it is, I mean, you want to talk about becoming obsessed with this movie? I mean, I bought it on VHS. This is back when VHSs were a little more expensive than 1999. Yes. Um, forget. There was a local video store called Funky Fred's Videos. And this was there was not a lot of big chain video stores where I'm where I was from in Canada. <laughs> and I was calling at least twice a week. Has Terminator 2 Judgment Day come out on video yet? No, it doesn't come out for three more months. <laughs> and I would keep calling because back then it was a while between the theatrical release yeah. and the and the video release. Six, eight months more. And they finally I remember the video store called me back because they were so tired of me calling and said it's coming out this Tuesday or whatever. We've put a copy aside for you. We don't normally so do this, re- res- you could You could go on the internet and find the release dates on things. Like you had to just like yeah. all you kids out there, you had to go dig up stuff. You had to go find it for yourself. You couldn't just click on Google. Yeah. So the the James Cameron experience for for a 13-year-old was life-changing because mm-hmm. I had never seen anything like that. And it's a movie that, look, I, I'll, I'll go two years without watching it because I want to have that just that little bit of respite and then put it on the surround sound and sit back and take it all in. And with the exception of a couple bad scenes involving, you know, there's that scene where uh, you know, he pulls out. They're they're in the 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 freeway tra- the chase inside the canals, and Arnold pulls up on the bike and grabs John and pulls him over, and that's a pretty bad green screen shot. But putting mm-hmm. that aside, the movie holds up like no other film from that era. I mean, it is an amazing movie. Uh, you know what it is? It's a great ride, and it's a great experience, and it it will always forever be on my top ten list. Your thoughts on the film? Wow. Well. 
I don't know what uh, it's uh, more I can say than that. That is quite a, a ringing endorsement. I mean, I um, I was already, you know, in my directing career when this came out and and, uh, you know, knew all Jim Cameron's work and had seen all his films prior. The expectations were huge. I saw it opening weekend. And again, we you know, everyone was blown away. I, I looking at it now, I really am kind of stunned by, you know, the effects it, for those of you that might go back to it or recall it, it, the effects at the time were groundbreaking. Okay. You have to understand that the kind of liquid, um, metal, you know, or it kind of looks like reflective aluminum, you know, or chrome of the nemesis of, of, um, Schwarzenegger's nemesis, Robert Patrick, just, you know, him being blown apart and, and coming back together and the liquid going into his shoes and, you know, the holes in his chest, just that alone was mind blowing. And I remember being struck by that. You know, it's it's a very, uh, you know, it's a compelling story because it's really also kind of it's a father son story, really. Right. At the heart of it, the kid doesn't have a dad and the Terminator becomes his dad and yet his dad goes down in the end. And he so he loses his dad again. And uh, but he still got his mom, who's like the ultimate, you know, mama bear protector. Um, so, so again, I, I, in looking at it this time, I, I was, um, I was struck by the effects because by today's standards, they're incredibly rudimentary. Um, they're, they're just, they're very, very basic and it just shows you how much things have changed. And yet in watching it, how he had to use them so minimally because they were incredibly complex for that era. So there are shots like with the ripped apart Robert Patrick head um, that's split in two. That was like physical, that was a physical effect, you know, because doing that in post-production, which today would be a piece of cake, um, was a big, big deal. I, I was, I was struck by the inventiveness, his, his really clever use of, of the techniques that were available to him, um, to achieve all those mind blowing shots. I mean, just the, the motorcycle blasting out, you know, the, the side of the building, jumping onto a helicopter, laying on the skid, getting in, throwing the guy out, that, those kinds of stunts that now would just all be against, you know, green screen or blue screen, everything would be CG, everything would be fake, you know, just, you know, even the guy flying through the air, that was a real stunt man in that movie, being guys flying through the air would be a CG guy. All, so many of the stunts you see now are actually CG people, especially flying and landing and smashing. Um, which I think takes a lot of the the excitement out of it. So to me, I was just like blown away by by being reminded of how how far he had gone um, technically. And then, as I just said a few minutes ago, and then also by at its core that it has this emotional through line. You know, um, even even the inventor of you know the, the the guy the inventor who ends up you know creating the ai that destroys the future you know blowing up the facility this guy has a you know a wife and a kid you know what i mean and and he goes down and and um it had heart and i think a lot of these movies then just again cg comes in and it's just bigger louder more complex um imagery and less and less and less heart because you do really when he says there's one more chip Inside my head, you know, I am the last chip. Lower me down. I cannot terminate myself or whatever he says along those lines. And you're like, oh, wait a second. So he's now going to, you know, sacrifice himself in the in the thumbs up. You know, it's very Jim Cameron at the end, you know, as he goes down. So I, I yeah, I mean, it, it was groundbreaking. It in, And I think the reason why it holds up 
like you're saying is, but again, isn't because of the effects, because the effects now have been completely eclipsed. The stunts completely. You've seen it all, although, although I will say that that heavy duty truck blasting off that bridge down into that wash, that is a hell of a, of a car slash truck stunt. I mean, there, he, Jim was known for going for crazy stuff and, and, and now it's, again, it's all CG, so it doesn't really count anymore. But back then he really did it in camera. Same with true lies was known to be pretty crazy. And so anyway, I think it, uh, I think he, he really, he did something special. One thing I'd like to say about James Cameron and this, I think this really holds true to all of his films is he seems to get a good performance out of even the minorest of minor characters in his films. I, I almost feel like he auditions everybody. There's from from the scene inside the, the 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 mental hospital where Sarah Connor is, you know, to the nurses there, to the security guard, uh, to Miles Dyson's wife, every character to to that great scene in Aliens when they're getting ready to do the drop on the planet, and you've got the pilot, the female pilot, and she's just giving the countdown, and she's barely in the movie. What strikes me about every single Cameron film is the 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 nuanced and small performances he gets out of everyone like he takes every little detail and every little scene extremely serious yeah he's a full court press director you know it's just that's that's how i describe him is that everything is dialed in and pushed as far as he humanly can it's interesting it's it's interesting <laughs> and he only makes a movie about once every 20 years so you know yeah well now yeah he used to a little more regularly, but uh, he got uh, he likes to go in his submarine, I guess. <laughs> so, That's a thing now. No. So okay. all right. So so um, before I get to number three on the list, yes, I want to do a couple more honorable mentions, and uh, I'll do this again. This is not on what you and I talked about. This is not on my list of honorable mentions, but it's really easy. Uh, I want to just do a couple more, or I want to do a couple more honorable mentions, and that is, I want to talk about. About the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises as being um, not only what I think are the two greatest comic book film adaptations ever made, but I think, this in the, especially in the case of the Dark Knight, one of the best films ever made. Um, but they also represent to me the last bastion of uh, complete storytelling inside the comic book film universe, in the sense mm -hmm. that Nolan st told a story from that had a beginning, middle, and end. And that was it. And when I when the Dark Knight Rises was over, I was satisfied. I was with the story, and I left, and that was it. And I have not been into comic book films since then, and nor do I think I ever will be in the future. But I do have to recognize what Nolan did with those three films, especially the second and the third one. Without a doubt, they're a cut above everything else. And and I do think I agree with everything you just said. I just think that that they they opened in, that door and closed it. And, and yeah, I mean, sure, there's room for those other movies and people are entertained by them and they make a lot of money and, and there's certainly nothing wrong with yeah. any of that. When you talk about cinema, you want to talk about lists of the best. Yeah. They, those are the ones that, that worked. All right. So number three on the list. Now this is an interesting one. This is an interesting story. This, if you look at every movie I've done with the exceptions of number one, we're looking at, we've got... 2004, 88, 84, 93, 96, 97, 91. Then we come to number three on the list, which is 1975. And it's not Jaws. No, it is the movie that swept the Oscars. 
And in the history of the Oscars, this has only happened three times. It happened in the 1930s, it happened in 1975, and it happened in 1991 with Silence of the Lambs. And what I mean by sweeping the Oscars is Best Director, Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, Best Actress. Of course, I'm talking about 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Here's a movie that is really unique to everything else that's on this list. A true character study. It is both comedic, dramatic, heartbreaking, heartwarming, all rolled into one. and has arguably some of the best performances ever shot on film. It is a movie that, even though there's another film that came out in 1975 that was also up for Best Picture, it is the movie I still think that deserves to have won that award. Now, Phil may disagree with me on that one, but it's a movie that I have rewatched 20 times over the years. Uh, I always see something different. I the the I'm, I'm almost tongue-tied at how amazing the performances are in this film. And I'll turn it over to you, Phil. One Flew to the Cuckoo's Nest. Agree, disagree. It Did it deserve all the accolades it won in 1975? Did it deserve to sweep the Oscars? Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> Not even a question. I think it's one of the greatest films ever made. Flat out. It certainly would make my top 10 list and uh, way up high. And I think uh, it's a flawless movie and uh, there aren't many of those. That's the key. Um, That's the key right there. What you said, flawless movie. And there are not many of them. Because even if you, you know, you can, you can love a movie and even think it's one of your, you know, or say, you know, it's one of your 10 favorite, but you can still say, oh, there was this scene or that performance or that moment or music here or this. No. Cuckoo's Nest is just flat out, unstoppably one of the greatest films ever made. So... I don't know what, you know, what more we can really add to it other than if you haven't seen it, get it, put it in, watch it, and you'll know what we mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I it's add- just, just ones I can't, I just can't, you know, it would, I, 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 like you, I'm tongue, I'm tongue tied too, because it is so above and beyond brilliant that it's, it's just, it is hard to describe. It was hard for me to just recently. I rewatched uh, The Exorcist Part Two. I did a, I, I did a, a, a pretty long extended episode on the The Exorcist. And, yeah, I and we, we talked about The Exorcist Two, and of course, I had to watch the movie for the very first time. And when I was watching the opening credits for The Exorcist Two, Richard Burton. Oh wow, Richard Burton's in this movie. I'm like, wow. And then it said Louise Fletcher, and I was like. Oh my, Louise! Yeah, this was was this her Richard fault? Burton Fletcher, yeah. I was like, well, I'm going to be in for a great movie. But what really struck me about watching The Exorcist Part Two was Louise Fletcher was I felt channeling Nurse Ratchet <laughs> quite a bit. But the the like I, I I kept expecting Nurse Ratchet to, or excuse me, Louise Fletcher's character. I kept expecting Louise Fletcher's character in Exorcist Two to take a turn like Nurse Ratchet does in Cuckoo's mm-hmm. Nest. But she never does. So there was this uneasiness while watching who's uh, her character in Exodus Part 2, who's a very, you know, she's a good person in this movie. And I just remember going, I, it was it was a little unsettling and a little uneasy for me to watch that because yeah. because, because it's just the tour de force that was her character yeah, I don't in think she ever. Nest. I don't think she ever really recovered from that character, which happens on occasion where you do something that is so perfect, it becomes who you are and who you're recognized as. It just becomes a part of your persona, which is completely unfair and a shame. But she, I think probably she at this point in her life, she's like, I'll always be Nurse Ratchet. I'll, you know, I'm Nurse Ratchet then. I'm Nurse Ratchet. Like, I just I'll never get out from under that. And it's, I'm sure, a major blessing and curse at the same time. But, you know, Jack Nicholson at that moment in his career 
was at the peak of his powers. You know, you, you know, I would add Chinatown to that, obviously, and and several others. But that movie to me, just that in Chinatown. But I mean that that. But what he does, and remember, this is from an inc- a great novel. Yeah. And the novel is told from the point of view of Chief Bromden. You know, the the book is is so. Imagine adapting a book from a mute the mute Indian chief's point of view and turning it into that movie and and reading the book, by the way, will blow your mind even more at how brilliant, I believe Bo Goldman adapted it, how brilliant the film is. And and it's one of the few handful of great novels. I mean, you got to say the Godfather, remember the Godfather was considered kind of a B minus kind of trashy pulpy novel. Um, In fact, I've never read the original Godfather novel. No one's ever even recommended to me. Whereas Cuckoo's Nest, on the other hand, is taught in schools. I mean, it's yeah. it's a it's literature and considered such. So to take a great piece of literature and then turn it into an equally great movie is of another like one off. It's never done. Um, a handful of movies, and I'm pressed hard pressed even to think what the other ones are right this minute. So. Yeah, I just, you know, you just cannot do better um, than Jack Nicholson sitting underneath, I won't ruin it for anyone, but an open window mm-hmm. with a train whistle off in the distance and a teeny little smile on his face before he nods off to sleep. And I'll just leave that for everybody else to go watch. When those eyes close, oh. it is, that's that, I mean, and, and we do, for those who haven't seen it, well, we're just talking about a particular scene in the movie, but when those eyes close and the camera fades to black, mm. it is, that is unbelievable. Okay. It's unbelievable. I think that music comes up, but I, I, uh, yeah. So everybody, the, the best, you got to see it. If you haven't seen it, you're in for a major, major treat. It's an, it's incredible and it'll make you think, it'll make you think about a lot of stuff and it's incredibly entertaining. It is not going to be homework. It's incredible. He's Nicholson's. Inc- You'll see Nicholson go, where are those guys now? Well, guess what? They they don't exist. We don't have a Jack Nicholson right now. Yeah, we have some great actors, but guys, he's a whole other thing. This is a put your phone down and watch <laughs> the movie. <laughs> hey, Tim Man here from the YouTube show Splattered Plastic. I just want to wish Dana a happy fifth anniversary. I can't believe it's five years of you doing the show. An amazing show. Great stuff. Love re-listening to episodes. Do it on my daily commute quite a bit. Big fan of the Dark Knight trilogy. Love listening to that. The Aliens trilogy, obviously. Big fan. And every, every all the shows are good. You know, I don't even use IMDb anymore. I just listen to your show. Because you literally are the, the, the guy that has the info, you know. And five years, that's amazing. That's amazing. So to another five years... Hopefully, you know, keep keep at it. This is great stuff. We all love listening to it. Um, carry on doing the, the you know, episode. You do episodes on on some of the greatest movies ever, and Jaws being one of my favorites as well. You know, you can't go wrong. So anyway, Tim Man here from Splattered Plastic. If you get a second, go to YouTube and check out Splattered Plastic. If you like vinyl and you like horror, like vinyl soundtracks and horror, this is the show for you. We discuss. All site, all sorts of uh, soundtracks, scores to these movies. We'd go into, we go into it a little bit, then go into the actual tracks. But check us out. We're on YouTube. We also have podcasts under this, you know, the same show, but on a podcast as well. If you're on your commute. But anyway, enough about this. On with the show. 
Cheers. Now, number two on this list is, I think a lot of people are going to be surprised by this one. I was surprised. I agree. Yeah. But this one, if there is a movie that I connected with more, and this is, again, this is going to sound shocking to a lot of people. It was 1992's My Cousin Vinny. Now, people are be like, what in the world are you even talking about? Now, granted, it is a very, very funny movie. It's an extremely funny movie. It is. But here's the thing. In 93, I came home from school. This is in Canada. I had just finished school for the year. I came home. My parents were home. They called a family meeting. And I said, I wasn't really too upset because the last time they called a family meeting, it was we were going to Disney World. And so I was excited. <laughs> this family meeting was to inform my brother and my sister that uh, my mother, who's a physician, had accepted a job in the United States. And specifically in a very rural part of Tennessee. And in six weeks, we'll be moving there. Now, this is... This is, listen, for a 15-year-old, this is life-shattering news that your entire life is going is about to be uprooted and changed, and you're going to be moving to another country, but you're not moving to a big city. You're moving to a place called Taswell, Tennessee, which is 50 miles north of Knoxville, Tennessee. The only thing I had to relate to that move was the fact that I had seen my cousin Vinny a few times, and what I love about my cousin Vinny is it so honestly depicts what a small town is like in the south and it doesn't make it, it doesn't make fun of a lot of the characters sure there's a couple idiots in the movie but it shows an honest respect for the small town from the sheriff to the judge to the district attorney to the legal system as a whole and i moved to a town that was about the size of the town wazoo which is the town in in my cousin Vinny, and i moved to a town like that so i could so honestly relate to to what it was like to live in that community and then to top it off i still think it's one of the funniest movies ever made but for personal reasons because i actually lived a somewhat interesting experience very similar to what it was like to live in that town is why it's sure. one of the most impactful movies on my life uh, one of the most impactful movies in my life and i just think and from what i've read and from what i understand it's also one of the most legally accurate films Ever yeah. like the courtroom scenes are are supposed are from what I've read and the research I've done are very accurate as far as the terminology, mm -hmm. the procedure, everything about it. Uh, I'm I'm told that it's shown in a lot of law schools as you know sort of the right way and the wrong way to sort of handle court procedure. But I just love the movie, love the characters. Marissa Tomei won a you know famously won an Oscar for her role. It's a true fish out of water Deservedly story. So. Deservedly so. Deservedly so. Of course. so. But it was, you know, it's a true fish out of water story for, you know, all our characters who are from New York. But I viewed it as this was my reality. And that's why the movie is so special to me. Wow. Well, that's yeah, obviously, that's incredible. And and uh, rightly so. I think that that, you know, the movie I watched it again f for our conversation and I was just struck by how just flat out entertaining it is and remains, you know, and always has been. I, I, I just Pesci is incredible. She's fantastic. Um, I love Fred Gwynn. I've always loved Fred Gwynn. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm of the age of the Munsters. For any of you, maybe remember him uh, as Herman Munster. And um, it's just, it's just, you know, it's just a great comedy. 
Yep. It reminds me like of an, of an old Billy Wilder comedy. You know, it reminds me of kind of like Some Like It Hot. You know, it reminds me of of what he did or Howard Hawks, what, what they did, uh, bringing up Baby and Great Balls of Fire and, and films like that. I think that that it just has the traditional setup. You know, it's very, very traditional, the yep. movie. It's very structured in a classical way, much like the screwball comedies of the 30s and 40s, which I love and admire. And, and, and I think that's why if you go see – if you watch My Cousin Vinny again or if you haven't seen it, you, you're going to really laugh and be and be struck by how well constructed it is. The characters are great and, and Pesci's hysterical and, and – and, but it's – its structure is like almost by the book, yet because everything's so – the performances are so original and the, the situations are so relatable and you know you root for them and, and you root for her. And they said, can I help you? Can I help you? Can I help you? And he won't let her help you. He wants to do it on his own. He won't let her help. Won't let her help. Won't let her help. And of course, in the end, she saves him. And she, but, but what's so great about the final courtroom scene, and, and I'd forgotten about this, is how angry she is at him and actually doesn't want to help Joe Pesci. And she says, he she says, Your Honor, may I may I treat her as a hostile witness? You know, so his own fiance is trying to blow the case for him, but she has the information and he knows she has information and he's prying it out of her. And yet by the end, she's proud of what she's done. And they end up so it's it's a it's just a hell of a lot of fun. But I think that's really interesting, Dana, that the here you were, you know, as a kid being thrust into this whole new environment, much like these characters. Mm-hmm. You had this movie that kind of helped you through it and helped you relate to it and understand that it was all going to be okay, which obviously it turned out just fine. Yeah. I can imagine – I never got uprooted like that as a kid and, and um, pretty much lived in, in the same town – or did live in the same town my whole life. And um, you know, uh, so it, it just – I didn't have that experience. And, and But I think that's an, a real tribute to the movie that it ended up being not only all those things that, that just – it is as a great piece of entertainment, but that it personally had, you know, acted as this kind of bridge for you. That's really cool. I always like to share this story with people and I'll share it with the listeners for the first time. When we got to Taswell, Tennessee, population 2000, my first day, this was also going to be my first day of high school. So imagine, if you will, the, 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 tra- the, the trauma that is high school for most people. You know, it's it's very traumatic experience for a lot of what, people. What, what grade? Ninth grade? This was ninth grade. Yep. Oh my God. So, so I might've been 14. I said I was 15. I might've been 14. Okay. I might get my days wrong. My, my, my age wrong. Here's the bottom line. I missed the school bus. So my mom had to drive me to school. I get there. I don't know. I'm assuming that your first day of high school, you're supposed to dress up. So I'm wearing, you know, press khaki pants, a, a buttoned, you know, button down shirt, you know, that's nice and neat and press. And I've got my backpack with two straps, you know, but not, not a single strap. I've got both straps. <laughs> and and I walk into the front off the front doors of the high school and there's no one there. It's empty. The halls, it looks like Elm Street when when mm. Heather Langenkamp is it's empty halls and I'm going but there's cars everywhere in the parking lot. I'm like, "Where is everyone? There's no one in the office. There's nothing. It's it's incredibly it's incredibly eerie." And I just continue to walk down the halls and I begin to hear a, a noise. And it's getting louder and louder and it's cheering and clapping and applause. And, and I can hear a muffled voice that's clearly being spoken through a, uh, a microphone. And I realize as I'm getting closer and closer that the entire student body, staff included, are all assembled in the gymnasium. And this is the, you know, the first meet and greet and the big powwow. And that's, you know, let's welcome everybody. First day of school. Well, I'm late because I've missed the bus. And I walk 
And I push through the double doors into the gymnasium. And there's the basketball court, the wooden basketball court. It's like poor Jerry Mitchell in three o'clock high. Exactly. I walk through and there's about 400 people on both sides of the bleacher. And across the, the basketball court is the principal on the microphone. And as I walk in, everybody goes silent and just stares at me. No. And I'm just sitting there like, what? And all of a sudden, the principal in this very drawn out East Tennessee accent, he goes, who are you? Hey, you, who are you? And I'm just sitting there and it's dead silence. And I mean, you want to talk about red? Hey, he said, I I said, what's your name? And I just said, Dana, which... You know, in hindsight, my middle name is Alan, and I probably could have chosen to go by Alan for the rest of my life. But I said, Dana. He goes, what? I said, Dana. He goes, Dana. Everyone erupts into laughter. Everyone's laughing at me. And I just turned around and I walked out and I walked down that same hallway and I walked through the front doors and I walked back to our house. And I remember I knocked on the door and my mom answered. I don't want to go to school today. I explained to her what happened. She goes, come on in. We'll take you back tomorrow. But well, I'll tell you. She went back at all. I'll tell you this, though. As embarrassing as that story was, the next day when I went to school and I'm walking through the halls, this is like the redemption at the end of a movie. Everybody mm-hmm. knew who I was. Yeah. I walked by and everybody, well, hey, Dana. Hey, hey, Dana. Hey. One guy came up and goes, hey, Dana, you play football. We need people on the football team. You want to come play? Yeah. And, and, and just like that. The entire school knew who I was. Wow, that's great. And it 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 totally in one in twenty four hours completely turned around. But it was I remember that was that was one of the seminal experiences in my life where I chose to to embrace my first name, which for maybe international listeners don't know, it's more of a girl's name than typically a, a guy's <laughs> name. But I've, I'm I'm okay with that. But um, some of the most fundamental years of my life were spent living in that small town. And some of my closest friends to this day are still, well, I think we've all left that small town or people that I met in that school. And, and I was best man at a wedding a few years back for somebody from that high school. And so uh, again, my cousin Vinny, that whole, that all just brings me back to that whole experience. That is a great story. Well, thank you. (laughs) Yes. It's it's an interest. It was an interesting experience. I can tell you that. I'm Yes. Let's go to the the last bit of honorable mentions. Now, okay. now the, when it comes to honorable mentions, there's a director that I we haven't even spoken of. And mm-hmm. there's a director who uh, I think much, well, <laughs> I was going to say I think much like Phil, but I would jump and go see all of his movies. But you've got a much different relationship with, with this director than, than I do. Um, mm-hmm. But I will immediately uh, stop what I'm doing and always go see a Steven Spielberg directed film no matter what it is. So with when it comes to honorable mentions, there are two. And the first one is Schindler's List. And the reason why this gets an honorable mention, this is not the feel-good movie that you want to just pop in and let's mm-hmm. let's watch the movie. For my money, I, I think it's the single greatest film ever made. I think it's the single most important film ever made. Uh, I think it opened my eyes to something that I didn't have an understanding of, in the least. And maybe you know, part of that could have been in 93 when it was released. I was I was younger. And it wasn't something that was actively taught in school. And that was the, 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 the real horrors of what was happening during World War II, what was happening in Nazi Germany. And it's Spielberg, I think, at his absolute best. 
And it is a movie that rightfully deserves the best picture. He rightfully deserves best director. And it's a movie that, although I don't. It's more like it deserves a Nobel. Yeah, but, yes, yes. Yeah. And and it is a movie. It is a movie that is shown in high schools, and it is a movie that is used to teach what happened in in during that period. But it is also a movie. Although I say I don't actively say, "Oh, I'm going to watch Schindler's List this weekend." When I do watch it, I'm so fully vested. And you mentioned this earlier about there not being a wasted scene, and there is not a wasted scene at all in Schindler's List. Your thoughts? Oh yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I, it's just one of those. It's a masterpiece, you know. I mean, again, it, it, it along with Cougar's Nest in its own but different way. Um, it's in the masterpiece list. There, there are not that many of them, you know. Uh, a perfect, flawless movie and a movie that, like you say, you know, where the story from an historical perspective is is incredibly important to to remember and to. Um, in his case, he dramatized it in, in a way that that I think reached, you know, the world with its kind of, you know, its power and its message that kind of nothing that ever there were documentaries, but no, nothing ever before it had ever achieved. So, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a one off. And certainly in his career, too, it stands. I kind of when I talk about Schindler, when I, about, when I think of Steven Spielberg's career, I always think of Schindler's as kind of outside of yeah. everything else. I kind of silo it off into like this space where he like went into this trance-like state and he'll even just has described this as like the year or, or so making that movie as kind of an out-of-body experience even for him and i think when you if you compare the filmmaking to his other films it's it's very very true like he he doesn't rely upon a lot of the techniques and tricks that he uses in his other that are incredibly entertaining that he's used in his other films he really strips it down obviously it's black and white but but he it was really his first experience you know, use of majority of uh, handheld and, and kind of a docu style, if you will. And I think that, that it really is kind of like this out of body Spielberg experience, um, that only the master, which is what he is, could, could have achieved. So yeah, it's, a uh, it's its own, it's its own thing. The other honorable mention came out in 1998 and it's a very much for the similar reasons. And that's saving private Ryan. And the reason for that is here, once again, the master Spielberg <laughs> fundamentally changes my views on what World War II was like for a soldier. Because up until that point, most World War II films, I would think of John Wayne, you know, I would think even Patton, which I think is an excellent film, does mm -hmm. not, which does not show the true horrors of what the soldier went through oh, no. of what no. my grandfather went through my grandfather was a world war ii vet who never talked about what it was he never talked about his experiences you know fighting for the the, the canadian army that first 25 minutes of saving private ryan i saw in the theater and phil i wanted to leave because i was having it was so difficult to watch that's the yeah. second that the 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 uh the door begins to go down on the higgins boat okay yeah, and, sure. and that opening salvo of bullets just rips, rips apart. The the, yeah. it, it, uh, right there. I had, pop, I had you know, a popcorn and soda and, you know, watching it, getting ready to watch a Spielberg film. I dropped my popcorn on the floor. It was so much to take. And this is no secret to anyone that's seen the film. It had pretty much impacted everybody that way. But, a, I mean, 
that movie, again, it's not one I, I, I eagerly anticipate watching, but when I do watch it, it gets my full attention. Your thoughts on that film? Yeah, I, I love the movie. I mean, for me, I had a different experience with it only in that um, starting in, I don't know, like seventh, eighth grade, somewhere in there, I started reading all the Cornelius Ryan books and he wrote the famous book, The Longest Day, which is about the invasion of Normandy. And it's about all the different perspectives of what occurred on that day from the, you know, the paratroopers, the gliders to, you know, Omaha beach and all the other beaches, uh, Juno and sword and all the, you know, um, the Canadians and the French and the British and the Americans. So it's an incredible, there's made, made a movie out of it. Um, and it's interesting, but it is John Wayne's in the movie. <laughs> um, so it's very much a gung ho version of the book is very realistic. He also wrote, um, the last battle, which is about the battle of the bulge. He also wrote a bridge too far. Um, I've read all, I had read all three of those before I saw, um, saving private Ryan. So, and, and a bunch of other, I was kind of a world war II aficionado. And I'd also developed the, uh, a script about the life of Robert Kappa and Robert Kappa is the famous world war, war photographer who shot all those famous black and white photos from Omaha beach on D-Day that you've all seen the guy in the water coming through the, the tank trap and, and, uh, the guy's unloading, uh, from, from the land, from the landing craft running out the back, those super grainy, they're the only ones from the invasion that exist. And, and, um, so I had actually had a, my own 30 minute D day coming out of the craft sequence that I'd wanted to shoot in black and white, like, like Spielberg did Schindler's list and, 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 uh, all of that. So I just sat there with my jaw, you know, hanging in my lap going, well, you know, that's the end of that. <laughs> that's the end movie and um and i thought the depiction was so realistic and so incredible you know all the way from this you know the sound design you know the the bullets that that's good the going the water the underwater that you know all that stuff so we all i think everyone can agree that that is a cinematic tour de force that has never been that had never been done before and has not been matched or equaled since no. i really like the rest of the movie what keeps it for me from being, you know, almost a flawless movie is is that last scene where it morphs from Matt Damon's face to the older Matt Damon at the, at the graveyard and he starts crying and says, was I a good man? And those girls are behind him and they say yes and they comfort him and he's there and the camera pulls up in a way. And I I just wish I just didn't need that last scene, you know, and I think that's that's a very common criticism of the movie. It's not I'm not the only one that has ever said that. And, and typically I would never even say i have a critical word uh for for spielberg who is you know my cinematic hero um but i i wish it had come up one scene short um and then it would have been pretty much a hole in one but i i love the movie and uh it's and i love war movies and i i, I you know always wanted to make one I, I try to make one about vietnam i try to make my world war ii one with kappa um and uh so that that film is uh, a fantastic movie. And just to just to end on a, a note that we talked about during, I think could have been, I don't know. We we we've, we've got on the subject of Oscars many times, but of course, ninety eight, the best Oscar for ninety eight was the moment that I decided to sharply veer away from the Academy when they, you know, when uh, Shakespeare and Love won over Saving Private Ryan. I said, okay, well, this doesn't matter anymore. Awards don't matter anymore. <laughs> because- well. They shouldn't matter if you can buy them. Yep, exactly. And if you can buy them, then they're no longer, you know, they no longer represent achievement. They represent politics and money, and and I think that's what happened. Yep. When I when I sent you an email, because uh, listeners, I did email him this list. When I sent you the email, I said that, you know, numbers ten through two 
are interchangeable. They could go in any particular order. Doesn't matter. You know, that's why I just didn't want to say these are my top 10. These are just my 10 favorite in no particular order, except for number one. Except for number one. And I again, I want to say this is probably going to be very anticlimactic for a lot of the longtime listeners because there's no movie that I've seen more times. There's no movie that I – it's so funny. I've seen the movie. I mean, honestly, let's be honest. People say, oh, I've seen that movie a hundred times. I've probably seen this movie a hundred times in my – and I mean, probably because I think about it. I've probably watched it five times this year. And let's see, probably, you know, you, the math starts to add up when you go back 25, 30 years. So, of course, I'm talking about 1975's Jaws. Speaking of Steven Spielberg, speaking of the master, what's so unique about this movie is take the shark out of it. And I still want to follow the three characters. You you could make a movie. You could make a movie that's Quint, Brody and uh, uh, Hooper just out on a fishing expedition. Just the three of them, and it's a movie I'd want to see. That's how damn mm-hmm. interesting those characters are. Now, of course, the movie is still, I think, uh, one of the most tense viewing experiences for first-time viewers, if you've never seen the movie before. And that's because the man who made the movie is, is, is a, pardon my French, is a fucking genius when it comes to <laughs> to 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 filmmaking and filmmaking techniques. And And you said this when we spoke on the phone. You know, you said that Jaws was groundbreaking. And I mean, we've talked at length about this movie. I really don't know what else we need to say. So I'll turn it over to you because you talk about a flawless movie. The mechanical shark doesn't look fantastic, but it's not shown very much in the movie. And the scenes that are the scene that it's in. Listen, the first time we get the big reveal when when Brody's chumming and, you know, I can slow ahead and come chum some of this shit and that shark pops off. You were in the theater. You experienced that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want you. People lost their shit. That's what I. Came out of the water behind him. The the essence of what that. Screamed. Like, I don't know. I mean, I don't go to, I don't go to that many, you know, straight up horror films these days anymore. But I don't know. I mean, it was, again, you know, it was just like nothing I'd ever experienced and really kind of like nothing I've ever experienced since in the, in the theater. Um, there's very few kind of like one-off cinematic experiences you have in a theater. Jaws is one of them. Um, uh, and, and probably the most important one for me, uh, as, a, as, a, as a, a filmmaker, or even, even as a human being, the film would have had the most impact on me than any other film made because of its timing, just like you, because of, of the timing it and the place it it holds in my life narrative for lack of a better way of saying it. But Jaw, no one had ever seen or experienced a movie like Jaws prior to Jaws. That's just, that's just what people have to understand that now people have taken Jaws and ripped it off and ripped it off and ripped it off on land, on sea, in space. You know, you, you you like alien? Well, guess what? That's Jaws in space. You know what I mean? You trapped people being attacked by a thing they can't stop. That's absolutely unstoppable. You know, test the metal of those involved and in to various forms of self-discovery and death. And I think that 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 movie just blew out what a what a film, what a piece of cinema could do. I mean, it did in terms of its success. 
I mean, in terms of its box office, you know, it rocketed to number one, like in a way that nothing ever had before worldwide. Um, I think it stayed in the theater for over a year, a calendar year, much like also his E.T. did and much like Star Wars did. Back then, you got to remember, movies stayed in the theaters for a year. That's incredible. <laughs> think about that. I'll never forget seeing like the happy birthday cake for E.T., you know, and it's like, it's been a year, Jaws, it's been a year, Star Wars, it's been a year. Can you imagine that now? The biggest hit, you know, whatever, I guess, you know, um, Age of Ultron, three months, maybe? Oh, if that. If, if that. that yeah. I mean, you're really talking about then like the second, like down, dwindling down to a few hundred screens after 10 weeks, you know, 12, you know, in that area. So cut to 12, 13, 14 months later, it's still a thing. And still making money. Yes, correct. Oh, they'd have pulled it if it didn't, yeah. right? It wasn't in there for the heck of it. And so I think that that also the way that he used the camera, the way that he used music, John Williams now beyond iconic score, um, the way Verna Fields edited the film, um, the characterization, uh, like you just said, those three characters stuck on that boat. It just, no one had ever put that all together in a package like he did. It's just, uh, it's just a flat, it's a showstopper, you know, and it really, really did. It is a, I don't think that any film historian would argue that Jaws was a turning point along with Star Wars, you know, shortly thereafter. And that's why it's Spielberg and Lucas, right? They all talk about that Star Wars, Jaws and then Star Wars changed the course of cinema history. I want if you could talk about, from your perspective, a 27-year-old director who's got one feature film under his belt. Now, mind you, he's got some. He's got a, a TV oh. resume. Yeah. I wonder if you could speak to the monumental task that was in front of him to get this movie made, and tell me, you know, what what, what a 27-year-old filmmaker what what this experience must have been like for him. Well, it's a he, you know. So, for those of you that don't know, I got my start from Spielberg and directed. Uh, several things for him and worked at his company Amblin as a director for five years. So I got to talk to him now and then. And, um, he actually told me that he did not want to direct Jaws. Um, you know, he had done, he had done Sugarland Express, which was unsuccessful, although a terrific movie for those of you that haven't seen it. I, I watched it again a couple months ago and it is really good and modern and so well done and so well acted. Goldie Hawn's maybe the best performance of her career. Uh, so anyway, and, and, but he was under contract, you know, with, with Universal and he, but what he wanted to do was he wanted to go direct a movie called Lucky Lady starring, uh, Gene Hackman, who had, uh, won best actor for the French connection, Liza Minnelli, who had won best actress for Cabaret and Burt Reynolds, our friend and Burt Reynolds, the biggest movie star in the world. So here he was in a place to go do that film, but it was for Columbia pictures. And Sid Sheinberg, his mentor, said, nope, not only are you not doing that movie, you're doing this movie called Jaws. And Stephen was not a fan of the book, and he was not a fan of the script that he was given. And he flat out did not want to make Jaws. He told me it was completely against his will. And he said, it just shows you that he said, you know, my entire career was built on Jaws, like Jaws was the turning point of my life. And yet... If I had had my choice, I would never make it. And Lucky Lady went on to be a, directed by Stanley Don and went on to be a huge flop with those three major stars. Mm. So he gets out there into Martha's Vineyard to shoot this movie that started out 
I think it was like a, a 52, 55 day schedule, you know, um, which five days a week, it's about a three month schedule. Um, I think halfway through it, he was double over schedule, meaning every day he shot, he'd gone a day over. Everyone at the studio wanted to fire him and everyone wanted, you know, but Sid, who was the chairman said, nope, we're not firing him. He said, Steven, Steven told me everyone wanted to dump me. Everyone wanted to fire me. The, the shark was breaking the weather, the water, the, uh, it just was a nightmare. Um, there's a, there's a fun book you can find called the jaws log, which, which tells some of this. And, uh, as well, they brought in Verna Fields, this incredible editor, um, she'd been around forever and, uh, you can look at her credits and, and she came and sat with him and they went through all the footage and figured out what they were missing and figured out what they had to do. And the movie ended up being 115 days of shooting, um, instead of the 52, 53, he told me it was the worst professional experience of his career. Hmm. He just said, and not, not the actors or anything like that, just physically getting the movie done. He just every single day was just you know everyone says the the hardest thing to do is to shoot a movie on water and that is true i've shot quite a bit on water it, it, everything that can go wrong will go wrong and you're you're subject to the weather you're subject to the chop you know the up and down like you know in the morning it's flat in the afternoon it's so choppy you can't even shoot people are seasick people it's just cameras get you know salt water and cameras don't go well together salt water and lights don't go well together it is it's why water world was a giant disaster. You making a movie in the ocean, and that's why when when Cameron did Titanic, he went down to Rosarita Beach and did it all in that tank. Yeah, it was completely controlled. It was it was you know you walked off land, went you know out into the water, then came back. It's still incredibly difficult. It's still super slow and hard. But you're not in the open ocean. Spielberg was in the open ocean. So was Kevin Reynolds. So so Cameron was like, no no no, we're building a tank, and and that's what Fox did for him. So it was a nightmare. It was, he told me the worst, like I said, the worst experience of his career. He said they put the movie together. It was not scary when they cut it together. He said it was just, uh, it just sat there. Then John Williams scored it. He said Jaws was a flop until John Williams scored it. And then when John Williams put, dun, 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 it said the, it was over, like the movie came together. Unbelievable. He said, uh, he said it just, uh, but he said literally I had a flop on my hands. It was a disaster of a shoot. The first cut, the first screening were, were flops. He said everyone was just, he said, in fact, there were laugh, there was laughter oh. at the movie because it wasn't scary. And they said, forget it. So Sid again said, forget it. Not until we get the score and get the sound, get it tightened up. I mean, the, and one of the bigger scares, if you recall, they added in post was where um, the guy's face pops out of the boat. That was shot in Verna Field swimming pool. Hmm. So, so when he, where he goes down, he was meant to find the shark tooth, but the guy's face wasn't supposed to pop out of the hole of the boat where a uh, Hooper is, is underwater. Um, you know, if you remember that scene and, and that was, uh, the shots of the boat itself were in a lake in the back lot at universal at night. And the, the inserts of the guy's face were done in her pool. That's awesome. so that entire sequence is faked back in Los Angeles. Uh, to add an extra scare. And it worked. In the movie. It works. Oh my God. People jumped out of their seats. So, you know, that film is just one of those, you know, for me, it changed the course of my life. It was the movie that I, I saw and I went, oh, I wanted to understand how, who the guy that, whoever the guy was that made the movie. Um, and I didn't know who Spielberg was. I had seen, I had seen Duel. 
when it was on TV and loved it, but yeah. didn't connect the dots. I had not seen Trueland Express. It was R- R- I couldn't see it. It was R-rated, whereas Jaws was actually PG. And so uh, it's the movie that made me want to be a film director. It's the movie where I said, I want to do what that guy did. Now, <laughs> I never did do or have not done what that guy did, but I wanted the job that guy had. And I, I wanted to figure out how to put pieces of film together so that you could elicit the kind of response he got out of me and the rest of the crowd. So that's the movie that inspired me to be a filmmaker. Outstanding. Outstanding. All right, Phil, before we wrap this up, I posed a question on Twitter. I announced that I was going to be recording my fifth anniversary episode. Um, We had planned on recording last Sunday. Unfortunately, I had some unforeseen, a bit of a health scare, thought I was having some 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 complications and uh, decided to go to the emergency room. And I'm happy to report that I am okay. And I want to thank everybody that reached out to me to, you know, send their support, including you, Phil. Thank you very much. And, but, uh, you know, one of the one of the challenging things for me was to, to email you and say, hey, listen, I'm sorry we have to push this back a week hmm. because I was really, you know, amped up and ready to go that morning. But unfortunately, I know I was excited. I don't know if the audience, if you've listened before, but I've got my new microphone set up and everything. So yeah. I didn't sound like, a, you know, a screechy Grinch uh, uh, like in my my previous cheapo microphone setup. So so. For the fifth anniversary, I went crazy here and got a little and, professional. And I appreciate that. And I, like I said, I felt awful rescheduling. But uh, it's all for you, Dana. So, but I, I did pose the question to people. I said I was recording my fifth anniversary episode, and I asked everyone if they could just, just for fun, tell me what their favorite episode in the five year history, five year history of how is this movie is. So I'd like to read some of those. Well, I'd like to read the responses. So uh, just bear with me, Phil. I'm going to go through a few of them. And um, sure, yeah. So we we have. Um, Sid the Whistle says, this is like Sophie's Choice. I can't say one favorite, but every time you have Phil Juwano on is an absolute pleasure. Okay? This is from Scott Kuroko. He says that I love all the solo movie history episodes and the business of film episodes, but the single most memorable episode has to be Theater Story 1999. Simply hilarious. That's one of my random movie theater stories. Uh, JR put, I randomly came across your show like two years ago and I always listen to it, learn so much new stuff about films. I love, I love like aliens, uh, still waiting on the AVP episode. That's the alien versus predator. But he goes, but I have to admit your movie theater rants are the absolute best. (laughs) I like that one. That's true. Uh, Jarrett puts hands down the recent Elm Street and Exorcist episodes with the awesome Kelly Goodner. I could listen to her talk forever. Hope she comes back for more discussions. Thank you, Jarrett. Uh, Angry John put, still waiting on the Gremlins episode, Dana. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we'll have to get to that one. Uh, this uh, Jay put, I got on the Hit'em train early. Interviews with Phil Juano and Andrew Jubin. My favorite episodes are the Business of Film series. Uh, favorite review is still the Dark Knight trilogy because it was because it was different from how I saw those films. Still would love to be on the show sometime. Okay, Jay. Well, we'll talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Uh, Will Morris said, um, uh, for sure, your Die Hard series is my favorite. Not only was it my introduction to your podcast, but I also learned learned about the unique history and production of one of the greatest action movies of all time. Keep up the great work. Uh, Thank you, Will. Uh, Innovation Festival tweeted, your cinema experiences. They're referring to the movie theater rants. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elijah Price 
put the one where you almost got eaten by a shark. Now, that's uh, that's in <laughs> reference to the episode I did on Point Break, where I told a brief story about my surfing experiences in Florida and how I uh, had a small but very limited encounter with a shark that swam by mm. me. But this was about a six-foot shark. Ooh. But it was enough. It was enough. That to, doesn't matter. No. Yeah. Just swimming by is plenty. It was certainly. Dolphin swims by me and I'm flipping out. It was definitely enough. Graham put State of Grace, one of the best films that hardly anyone's seen. Oh, uh, I didn't mean. Okay. Well, I, I don't know about the great film, but it's true. Hardly anyone's okay, seen Okay. Like, State of Grace, <laughs> uh, one of the best films hardly anyone's seen. And it's almost never spoken about. So mm. that one's for you, Phil. That's okay. That was nice. Graham, Graham, thank you. Yes. That was awesome. Thank you. Uh, Jerry Kowalski put love the exorcist, love the exorcist episode and the crossovers with the F this movie boys. All right. Evil Ed said, I enjoy the bad theater experiences. It made me feel better that I wasn't the only one to have unusual encounters when I'm try just trying to watch a new film. Casey Stigman wrote the West Craven retrospective with Jim Hempel. Hands down. I was inspired to immediately go and pick up two biographies on one of my favorite directors. Mm, uh, great. Uh, lame Rodden wrote, my favorite is Ghostbusters. It's my favorite film of all time. And although I already knew the backstory, I learned a couple of other facts I never knew. Uh, I love the old 80s movies, especially Aliens, Predator, Die Hard, etc. Uh, James put, uh, congratulations on fifth anniversary, Dana. It's very difficult to pick a favorite. I'm very fond of both the Die Hard and the Dark Knight trilogy episodes. As a huge fan of both trilogies, I thought your analysis we're both spot on. Keep up the great work, mate. Uh, let's see. So this is an interesting one. This uh, this gentleman, uh, his name is, I think it's Hinder Lon Hansen. He said, congratulations, the Aliens episode. It was one of the first episodes I listened to and really attached me to your podcast. I'm a fan of, and he actually tagged James Cameron. So he said, I'm a fan of James Cameron movies. So I was pleased to hear his background story. Looking forward to uh, the next five years. Oh, that was interesting. He tagged, he actually tagged Jim. So Jim may have read that. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, Handsome Dan, Handsome Dan Lopez said, so incredibly difficult, man. He said, I want to say it's one of the regular episodes because I love those. But how do you single out just one? The Icons episodes were all amazing. If there are any I'd be most likely to revisit, it's Riskly Matters. Such a mellow, fun episode. Okay. Uh, Mike from the Amateur Auteurs podcast, he said, Jaws the Revenge. I first listened to it three years ago, and I've been a fan ever since. The uniqueness and presentation of the show separated you from all others, and your personality made me co keep coming back for more. Thank you, Mike. That was really nice. That is nice. Uh, Michael Scott put, anytime you team up with Patrick Bromley and Adam Riskley, it's a, it's like the Voltron of my favorite movie podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> um, and let's see, I've got one more here. Uh, this one is actually from a gentleman who's been on the show a couple times, Adam Riskley. Uh, he said, uh, saw your fifth anniversary episode just now. My favorite is the business of film series with Phil Giovanno. With the blockbuster so ubiquitous, it's it was enlightening to learn about the behind the scenes of pre-visualization and the role of the director in t in a tentpole film. Happy fifth anniversary, Dana. The show is fantastic, and I look forward to hearing many more episodes in 2019 and beyond. So, thank you to yes. everybody who who uh, who took the time to tweet. Uh, it was really interesting to hear a lot of those answers. I think there was a recurring theme, Phil, and that was uh, you popped up there quite a bit on there. So, <laughs> and, and and I just want to say that. This is the last episode of How Was This Movie. 
Uh, it's certainly not the last episode of the podcast, but you know, I'm going to be expanding into different, different areas. But, um, Phil, you've always been one of my favorite guests to have on the show. I have learned so much about the industry, both what's on screen and behind the scenes. I, I, I value our friendship and I'm so uh, thankful that, that Jim Hempel took the time to introduce us. And, um, uh, even though this is the last episode of How Is This Movie, I can assure you this is not the last episode that Phil will be a guest on. I, I uh-huh. hope that uh, we'll I'm, and it's not even a hope. I know there are uh, mm-hmm. an endless variety of topics that you and I will be able to discuss. So, so Phil, thanks for joining me on the fifth anniversary. It, it's uh-huh. meant a lot to me, and I really, really appreciate you being on here. Thank you, Dan. It's an honor to be a part of your fifth anniversary episode, as well as the kind of conclusion of this version of your work. And I can't wait to see what comes next. I'm sure it'll be awesome. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And we'll definitely be talking soon. Great. And my name is Dana Buckler. And thank you so much for listening. The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. You'll find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.